2: You're rolling over there, Justin?
0: Rolling.
4: Check one, two. Check one, two. Nice.
2: Uh, y'all ready to go to Brown Town? Wow. What? <laughs> what did I say?
4: You saying Brown Town and Justin wearing that nasal strip <laughs> is just like... Justin <laughs> went a little too far into Brown Town, i said, Ew! <laughs> Jack. What?
3: I don't get it.
2: Okay, here we go. Uh, I got to sit up straight for this one.
4: What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be belting his ass off, I'm guessing.
2: Here we go.
3: The third film of QTs after back to back smash hit gangster movies. Some folks wanted another bloody shoot 'em up, but Quentin had his sights set on a different kind of pulp. Being a fan so long, Elmore Leonard had crossed his mind. If he ever adapted a book, it would probably be his kind. No one knew who he'd cast to deliver a comeback. But damn sure they could expect one hell of a soundtrack Let me tell ya Today on Cinema Possessed Pam Grier's about as bad as can be Today on Cinema Possessed Samuel Jackson's got a braided goatee Whoa, today on Cinema Possessed Robert Forster really wants to pound Ooh, baby Today on Cinema Possessed, we're talking Jackie Brown. Today on the pod, yes we are, yeah. Uh. Talking Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name is Jack Bishop. And I'm Justin Nisham. And with us, as always, is the Ordell Roby of this podcast.
4: Hell yeah, you best believe it.
2: Corey Clifford. She does tell me frequently that she's going to stick her foot up my ass.
4: <laughs> I thought
5: she was going to be the Sharonda of this podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, Country <now>.
2: gal. Hey, <laughs> Hey, now. <laughs> Uh, and each week, we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be dealt with like Beaumont,
3: an employee I had to let go. Ugh, so good.
5: I would hate to be let like, go like that.
3: Oh, yeah.
4: <laughs> oh, really? Any benefits? You would? Any
5: <laughs> any benefits with that like a severance package mm, or, severance
2: know? from this mortal coil uh-huh. mm-hmm. speaking of let go i uh went deep sea fishing this weekend didn't catch mm-hmm. a motherfucking thing <laughs> what's deep sea fishing
5: like what word
2: fishing in the ocean mm-hmm. deep style going way out uh-huh. that was like a wedding event or bachelor uh, mm-hmm. party mm-hmm. we got there and the the captain came out and he was like so here's the deal guys like we got word that all the spots where we knew fish were ain't got fish anymore. So here's your two options. We can go way out, but we're basically going into uncharted territory in terms of what kind of fish we're going to find. So there's a chance we might go all the way out there and you won't catch anything. Or we can go like an hour... And you can catch all sorts of stuff, but it's gonna be like small, easy, fishing one oh one kind of stuff.
4: You know, the first mistake was made here. So
2: all the all of us at a group as the group said, like, let's let's go for it because the bigger fish is out is way out there, you know. If you gotta go for the big fish. So um, what we didn't realize is that way out there meant four hours of just <laughs> Going through the water before we even start fishing, we gotta travel four,
5: four hours Four hours
4: is such a long time. Such a long yeah, time.
5: That's did and you didn't know that until he started driving. Well, he he until we made the decision. So he didn't make it like a big announcement. You lost me at Uncharted Territory. I would have been like, no. Turn around and drop me back back off of that land. Yeah. Let's let's go fishing at crazy rockin' sushi. Right. All you
2: can eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was probably the wrong choice. By the time we got out there, we were all already so exhausted, but we like rallied. We were like, okay, time to catch some fish. And when we first got out there, we were actually hit with a pretty good swarm of fish. Uh, I dropped my reel in the water with my bait on it, immediately got a bite, and I started like reeling in the fish. But I realized that not only was the the line not pulling in, but my like reel coil was like bunching up. And it was because I had forgotten one step of like flipping a switch to lock it. So I could feel the fish pulling my bait away from me. So I locked it real quick and I started reeling it, but I was afraid that I had like missed my opportunity. So I like did a little yank Mm. to try to like get the hook in and i could feel i just yanked the the sardine right out of its mouth
5: so you're speaking i don't i don't speak fishing so you're saying all sorts of words i have no clue what any of it means i've heard of bait before
2: right but you you're thinking of the movie with jamie fox where, yeah. uh-huh. where he's bait. when i say real uh-huh. you're thinking of like movie reels
5: i'm thinking that's all i know right i only know movie words um uh-huh. uh, act Action, cut, zoom in. That's it. That's a wrap. That's a wrap, yeah. That was a wrap on your fishing uh, adventure. So
2: to put it in terms you understand, I dropped Jamie Foxx into the water, and then Tim Burton's big fish came over and got him in his mouth, but then I pulled too hard on the movie reel, and popped Jamie Foxx out of Tim Burton's mouth. Uh, mm-hmm.
4: I'm embarrassed. And that
2: story bombed at the box. <laughs> yeah,
4: big time. Big time bomb.
2: <laughs> and yeah, that was basically my one and only time that I even had a fish wrap its little fish. Now, Justin,
4: lips around I'm gonna tell bait. you a part of the story that's actually gonna interest you.
2: Mm.
5: Oh, thank you. Um
4: yeah, I, I gotta I gotta get you back here. Um mm-hmm. so reel me in. Yeah, I'm gonna reel you in, baby. What does that mean? So for this trip, Jack was told he needed a long sleeve like some Shirt, you know, like a sunscreen shirt.
2: Shirt that has like UPF, SPF in it already. So,
4: through my brother, we discovered that, and maybe you know this hot tip for everybody REI, if you become a member, which is $30 to become a member, it's a lifetime membership. Lifetime. So, I had become a member like 10 years ago, I guess, and forgot. They will let you return. Anything used doesn't matter. Could be absolutely destroyed. Could be shoes. The sole falling off the shoes does not matter. They will accept as long as you return it within three years. No one year.
2: I thought it was three years of the membership.
4: I think it's 90 days without a membership. It's one year with a hey, membership. Hey, one year. Okay. Regardless, one year. it's That's anything. Good. Like you can use a tent. You're going camping with some friends. You want to look cool. Go get a tent from REI. Get the best one you can and then return that shit. Is that shady? Maybe, but it works. You're out in Vermont right now. If they're like, we're going to go on this crazy hike and you want to look like a slick looking guy who's got all the gear, go to REI, buy it up, have yourself a good ass time and return that shit, baby.
2: The guy was basically encouraging me to do it. He, yes. When he was giving me the spiel, he was like, you can return it for any reason. And he essentially stopped, leaned in, looked me dead in the eyes, and went, any reason. <laughs> and it was like, okay, he's basically telling me and, and he was from and chicago
4: and was obviously not an REI type person and was like i can't believe i have a job here at REI but things happen and this is where i am now but i'm from chicago but yeah you can return anything and so we i like, got cool. i got myself
0: wow. a
2: pair of boat shoes that i'm absolutely going to send fuck right looking, back
4: dumb as fuck but looking. they did me right on <laughs> that boat they did me right they did me right on that
2: boat
5: <laughs> boat shoes are the worst um, you know i wonder if i wonder if anyone ever tried to return a shredded tent with blood in it <laughs> Like, after a bear attack. <laughs> and everyone is, like... It's, like, a group of guys, and everyone's sad, and, like, like they've been crying all weekend. Oh, my God.
4: <laughs> we should test it.
5: It's you, Todd.
2: Never listen to this.
5: I saw a crazy video... Speaking of bears, I saw a crazy video of a tour guide uh, encountering a bear. And, you know, the thing that they always say, you have to, like... You can't run from a bear. You have to, like, uh-huh. yell and scream. Mm-hmm. And most people... Don't do that because they get so scared and their instinct is to run. And this bear was sprinting at them. I saw this the, video. Yeah. And the tour guide like turns back to the camera and he's like, all right. And everybody does it and screams and he runs and the bear runs
4: away. It amazing It's amazing. Wow.
5: It's amazing. I, I didn't actually believe that it was a true story. But after seeing that video, I was like, okay, I gotta just I'm gonna get it. big yeah.
2: and do it. Yeah. I'd heard about the pots and pans banging those around scaring the bear, but I would never assume that I could scare a bear just by screaming at it. But
4: mm-hmm. if you run, they immediately see you as prey and use you, mm-hmm. your ass as yeah. grass. Much like Belmont's ass was grass. Bam, that was a good segue nice back segue, into the Corey, movie. Nice segue. Yeah.
2: You did say mm-hmm. Belmont. Oh
4: Beaumont, sorry. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> Beaumont, Beaumont. Uh, Justin? I was thinking Chicago. What movie are
2: we talking about today? We're talking about Quentin Tarantino's
5: underappreciated 1997 gem, Jackie Brown.
1: For centuries, Americans have gathered together to celebrate the holidays, reaffirm family ties, and wish goodwill to all men. But this Christmas... Santa's got a brand new bag. Now, hey, you gotta listen to this, man, because this concerns you, all right? If you have a chance to walk off a
0: half of dollars,
1: would you take it? Yeah. What do a stewardess, a gunrunner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You gonna come in on this thing with me. You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half-million in cash. That was fun. Yeah, I don't the spot. There's only one question. Man, I ain't getting in this trunk. You ain't gonna be in here no more than 10 minutes.
6: Man, I ain't riding in no trunk for no minutes. <laughs>
1: Who's playing who? Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, and Robert De Niro. Is she dead? I, I, I... Yes or no? Is she dead? Pretty much, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. I love you. AK forty-seven. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every mother in the room, except no substitutes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Woo! That's an insane
1: trailer. <laughs> that's a pretty
2: good that one, was,
5: though. That was ridiculous. They don't even wow. have Pam
4: Greer talk. Yeah,
2: that is something I noticed in in the advertisements. I mean. It's telling about what the way the industry saw Pangrier at the time. Bullshit. Obviously Tarantino was in love with her, but they were like, we can't use her for advertising That's that. It's
4: insane. Much. Also, there's so many clips in the movie that would have been better for a trailer than like Robert De Niro being like, girl, that was good after having sex like there's so like there's literally like bad. Jackie Brown like they say her name so many times in cool ways they should have used that for I it. agree
2: that it's weird that they don't have much Pam Greer in there and I did cut out some of the trailer that did have some Pam Greer in it but it has t- oh. it, there's literally like only two spots of it and you can't hear her because they were clearly using like unfinished footage oh, you can't from it. do
5: that. You got you to air the trailer the way it is. Oh, I always
2: edit them. I edit them down to one minute instead of two and a half. So we're not just sitting here for <laughs> no, two wow. and a half minutes listening to trailers. Um, but yeah, the, even, even still, like a majority of the trailer is Sam Jackson. Because he was the hot commodity. I
4: understand the Sam Jackson of it, but no Pam Greer.
2: She's in there. She makes she has one she has one line in the in, in the jack cut. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah, uh, this movie came out in Christmas time, as you can hear in that. This was a Christmas movie, which most of Tarantino's movies I think were um
4: because they're big, but they up know until they're recently. gonna get big audiences.
2: And I think he liked the idea of people going and seeing his movies like with the uh, with the family yeah. after the holidays. Yeah. Corey, mm-hmm. this is probably correct me if I'm wrong one of your favorite movies of all time I would
4: say this is my favorite movie of all time and every single time I watch it Mm -hmm. I proclaim that like it like every time I'm like "Hmm, I wonder if I'll still feel that way and every time I specifically told Jack I like stopped it while we were watching it and I was like this to me is a perfect movie Even in, honestly, in the way that I'm like, they should be showing this movie in film school or like screenwriting classes or whatever. The way that they set up every single, or the way that he sets up every single character in this movie is perfect. It's so fast. It's so like, boom, you know who every person is. You Mm. know what the plan is. You know. I mean, I fucking love a heist movie too. And then a Quentin Tarantino version of that. It's like freaking perfection. This movie is, I just... I love it so, so, so much. And I can't wait to talk about all the ways why. Yeah. Yeah. What I
5: like about it is how, how slow it is. Like that there, the plot doesn't really get going until an hour into the movie and, and he takes his time with the characters. Yes. The character
4: development is perfection.
5: It's a, it's a simple device and it works really well. But the idea, you know, we've talked about this before in movies. Like sometimes it's fun. In the opening scene, you get a nice little short film that shows uh, the character doing something really well. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the movie becomes an entire film about them being challenged. Yeah. And like we just saw how good they are. Now let's put them in the most fun movie version of that that's going to push them to the limits. Yeah, and see what them this get thrown does, for a loop. Yeah, but this does it with like the villain with uh-huh. Ordell Roby. You get to see him sort of, uh, you know, take somebody off the map in mm-hmm. a in a really fun scene. It's, it's like, basically it's like, what's
2: it's, gonna happen to Jackie. Yeah, what's and supposed the whole to happen. Scene to
5: her. happens again with mm-hmm. Jackie, but this time it doesn't <gasps> go the yes. same the best way. And I think. Scene. That's such a fun way to get you to like care about her and what's gonna happen to her
2: and Yeah. It is a typical uh, it's a it's a typical Tarantino device too. Mm-hmm. It's it's basically like the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, essentially shows you everything that Hans Landa does and does well, and you see him do it successfully, and now we're gonna watch him try to do it again, but Stuff's gonna happen this time, and that's what Death Proof is. It's a device that he uses all the time, and yeah, it's super fucking fun.
4: The way he world builds is just like nobody else does it like him. It's yeah. so fun. Immediately, it's all just so fun. This is like, a, to me, like my favorite feel good movie.
2: Yeah, it's a it's like a, I could
4: put it on any time to make myself feel in a better mood.
2: It's kind of like his most loving movie. I would say this and maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are the two movies from his filmography that like feel like love letters to people, you know? Mm-hmm. And and this movie too is probably the closest he's come to like making a, a romance. And I would say mm-hmm. that it is a very romantic movie. And yeah, it stands out in a lot of ways. All the things we're talking about are all the reasons why a lot of people point to it as their least favorite Tarantino it movie. It
4: shocks me that people say that and I've always known that that like this is and he even doesn't he even say like if Jackie Brown is your favorite movie of mine
2: this is the one and only adaptation that he's ever done so it's not completely from his brain it is an adaptation of an Elmore Leonard novel She was basically like when people tell me that Jackie Brown is their favorite of my movies I know that they probably don't really like my movies this is the movie where I kind of do less of my things and you like that so he almost maybe takes it as like a backhanded compliment
5: well but he's objectively wrong he's just wrong I know I think so too I don't think think it's that like definitive and it is his dialogue I mean so what it's Elmer it's based off of a book He Mm he took some liberties he changed some things you know and it's his it's his voice. So
4: clearly his voice. I think
2: this is his best dialogue of mm-hmm. any of his films. Mm-hmm. It's not only like the funniest dialogue, like I'm laughing constantly through the movie, but it almost feels more effortless than any of his other movies too. Like I think this movie is maybe his coolest movie as mm-hmm. well. And part of that is because I think Tarantino has a cool style, but if you compare it to something like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, he's trying to be cool in those movies. He's actively like kind of trying to... Uh, Throw little bombs into cinema and this movie is cool without really feeling like it's trying to be cool and that's kind of what makes it cool to me. (laughs) Yeah,
4: I agree. That scene, that first scene with Samuel L. Jackson and Chris Tucker, like I just kept writing down like both of them are so perfect at delivering his dialogue that it feels Perfect. It's like perfectly executed by both of them.
2: Everybody across the board is perfectly cast in this, including Pam Greer. A misnomer about Tarantino is that he, he's misogynistic and that he writes bad female characters. We can all agree that there's a film bro quality to a lot of Tarantino's movies, and there's stuff about his movies that attract film bros. But I think it's completely false to say that he writes bad female characters. I would say on the, the reverse of that, I think he's one of the best male characters. Riot screenwriters that we have
4: to write female characters of my favorite female characters yeah. in cinema
2: I
5: don't really know if I hear that uh, Critique often it's you more hear like, it from more... people
2: who don't know Tarantino mm-hmm. They assume he's misogynistic because his movies are violent and because of some of the behind the scenes yeah. um, stuff that he's gotten into they assume that his women characters are Poorly yeah. written and that he abuses them and yada yada
5: Yeah, I feel like lately, post-Weinstein, the conversation has moved away from what happens on screen and more like, who is he behind the curtain? You know, there's a little bit of, like, mystery in terms of, um, is he a good guy, is he a bad guy? Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like people have speculations, but there hasn't really been, other than... The sort of implications of the Uma Thur- Thurman story, and yeah. he's some had some of scandals. The, some, had some of scandals. the how could you be so close to Weinstein and not pretty be, much? Yeah, yeah.
2: The speaking of controversies, we've talked about this. Uh, previously, but the controversy around this film had to do with Spike Lee. He took offense to Tarantino's use of the N word, particularly. That was from this, this movie. movie from this movie. Now, he had used the N word in both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction previously, but it wasn't until this movie, which has, you know, some might say an excessive use of the word in the movie. This is when Spike Lee spoke up and said, I think this is weird. And I. I think somebody needs to check this guy about it. And I, like I said on whatever previous episode that was, I think that's a valid criticism. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm not going to sit here and say it shouldn't, because he absolutely has a fascination with the word. And if it just stopped at Jackie Brown, you know, like if Tarantino took the note after Jackie Brown and then didn't continue to use the word pretty liberally in his films, I would maybe chalk it up to like, you know, he's writing a movie with black characters that are in black culture and he's maybe just trying to be realistic with it, Mm -hmm. but he has continued to push the boundaries of the use of that word. And, I think, you know, he has his defenses of it and I uh, you know, I like all the the final products of all these things too. But It's not it's
5: it, but I think it's it's not his defense of it. I think he, he's on offense about it. That's what feels so weird to me is like it's one conversation for us to have how do we feel about a white man using that yeah. word so much mm-hmm. in his across his body of work? Mm-hmm. And and then it's another question to be like, be so vocal about it to beyond the movies. That that's Tarantino likes to talk. And he has a little bit of a, a an aggressive temper and you can't talk to him about violence in his movies He will refuse to talk to you. He will refuse to answer the question So he's becoming more and more antagonistic yeah. about it and I just feel like Why it, it sucks that people can't have a conversation with him mm-hmm. anymore about it just because he feels either like he said all he has to say about it like he's unwilling to engage in in the same thing again, which fair but also like these are new a new generation of people you know who are trying to to talk to you
4: has samuel jackson who is like a prominent actor and obviously i think he is kind of quentin tarantino's muse i would say
2: yeah Um, absolutely
4: and but he's also been in a lot of spike lee well Mm -hmm. a lot yeah Yeah. kind of a lot spike was essentially the one who put him on are very good friends has that has he ever talked about it? Oh yeah, they Samuel had a, L. Jackson. Has? They had
2: a long-standing feud about it.
4: Okay, I feel like I remember you telling me about this, but remind me. Beca-
2: after this movie, basically, Sam Jackson s- stuck up for Tarantino in the very public debate. You know, it was something that when Tarantino did his Charlie Rose interview for this movie, Charlie Rose brought it up. Like mm. you know, you you've been called out by Spike. You know, as of whatever last week, you know, and had him talk on it and Sam Jackson came to Tarantino's defense and basically had the same defense that Tarantino had, which is just like as a writer, you should be able to write about anybody and use whoever's voice you're writing in. And um, they stopped working together. They didn't work together. Spike and Sam Jackson many, many years. It wasn't until Chirac that they made another movie together. And it was, they had to kind of come out and say like, we're friends again because of it. Um,
4: And have Spike Lee and Tarantino ever. Squash the beef? No. Mike g- probably
5: got it got worse after Django. <laughs> it
2: did get worse after Django and Spike was went on the record saying he would never see Django. Yeah. Um after but I want to say I saw an interview dropped more, the N word
0: yeah.
5: twenty thousand times. Yeah, it like set
2: the record basically. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> um yeah, I do want to say that I'd like seen an interview one time where Tarantino was like, "We've seen each other out and about and we say hi to each other." But, you know, I don't think they've ever like publicly squashed the beef.
4: To me, out of all of his movies, Jackie Brown is the least egregious of it because it's only black characters saying it in like in this movie, right? Yeah. And it's characters that are in the culture talking to each other. Like it doesn't it doesn't ever throw me in this movie. Yeah. Um because the way in which it's used.
2: Yeah, I have the same feeling. Like it bumps me in pulp fiction.
4: Yes. Pulp he's fiction is exactly yes. pulp it's fiction coming it bumps out of me. Of his mouth it doesn't bump me. Strangely, it doesn't bump me in Django because of the setting. It
2: bumps me a little bit in Django, but that's a tonal thing yeah. a little bit. It bumps me a little bit in Hateful Eight. Hateful
4: Eight, it does.
2: I like all these movies too, but it does like, it makes me feel like, ooh, we are dancing on the edge here with this. I don't feel like we're dancing on the edge of Jackie Brown.
4: I don't think that at all with Jackie Brown.
2: And I really, going back to the women conversation, I appreciate too that when he writes female characters, he very, very rarely ever sexualizes them. He typically writes them Mm -hmm. to be like a very... Impressive, empowered, and cool character. But, like, if you look at the way Pam Greer presents herself in this movie, it's sexy for sure. But it's not, it's not sultry, erotic in the way that, like, a lot of men write women. Yeah. I would say the same thing about Mia Wallace in Pulp Fiction. I would say the same thing about The Bride in Kill Bill. Like, he feels like the way he looks at his female characters is almost the way, like, a a little boy looks at like his babysitter that he has a crush on. Like, you're the coolest person in the world <laughs> rather than like, I want to get in their pants. Yeah.
5: He's a kid who's looking at his cool babysitter and also jerking off to her feet.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And there's plenty of feet shot in this yeah. and they're mostly Melanie's feet. It's It's interesting. He's not other than the feet. He's not like that horny of a filmmaker in general. This movie has his one and only sex scene in it. And it's, Pretty unsexy. This is
4: the one and only sex scene in all of his movies. Yeah, it's wild.
2: Yeah, and, and when you compare him to somebody like De Palma, who's one of his idols, who's incredibly horny, can't hide his fucking fetish. We were just
4: talking about another filmmaker who did it. Doesn't have any.
2: Who's not horny.
4: Who like doesn't really have any sex scenes? Who? What were? Who Wes. We were Wes
2: Anderson. To?
4: Wes Anderson. There it is. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. he's.
2: But he's now getting more. Yeah. You know. But yeah, it's interesting. And Tarantino has talked about that before. I don't remember exactly what his quote was, but he was basically just like, "Yeah, it's just like one of the things about film. I'm not that interested in. I'm not like that excited to go film a sex scene, and it's not something that I like completely appeals to me when I'm writing stories." Uh, Justin, I think you've mentioned before that your parents weren't Tarantino. They weren't into it, right? They were protective of you and Tarantino?
5: I don't think they were aware of Tarantino. They were aware of Pulp Fiction. Mm. They had seen Pulp Fiction. I think they liked it. <laughs> but they were like, this is too...
2: Not for Justin. This is,
5: this is everything that we don't want our son to watch. <laughs> it has all the things. Not for me.
2: Which is exactly what makes a kid want it so badly. Yeah. When you I say just... you can't have it, but we like it. Yeah. Oh, all you're doing is asking for trouble. I thought Pulp Fiction was smut.
5: Like, the way my mom talked about it, I thought it was, like, pornography. Mm -hmm. I had no clue it was, like, an
2: Oscar-winning movie. (laughs) How about you, Corey? Do you remember, like, do you remember growing up around this time, talk of Tarantino did your parents mention it yeah
4: I feel like Tarantino became a really big presence in my life because of you but my dad my dad's favorite movie is natural born killers and so that movie and Tarantino's relationship to that like I did know him through that and like I don't know. Again, my memory is mush. Um, But I definitely remember in high school when we went through and watched, you had me watch all of Tarantino's movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we even watched them maybe in order. Well, no, because I really, really wanted to watch Pulp Fiction. That's so funny to think about. I had never seen Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. and I wanted to watch it so bad. But Jack was, like, burnt out on Pulp Fiction at this point in yeah, his life. Yeah, when we
2: first started dating, I was, like, in a phase where I'm sort of, like, I'm over Pulp Fiction. So
4: instead, <laughs> Justin, I'm sure you've heard the story. But instead of watching Pulp Fiction, which I was like, please, let's watch that movie. He was like, no, I actually have a good movie for us. Let's watch this movie Kids. And Jack and I had not had sex yet. <laughs> And it was probably becoming the time where we were maybe going to. And he shows me kids, was. and after watching kids, I was so upset by it, and like was like, I never want to have sex ever. Like this is a horrible movie. Yeah. And wow, you could have you could have been getting it in sooner if you just would have shown me. Pulp- I realized. In fact,
2: I remember getting about thirty minutes from the end of that movie and realizing the way that movie ends, and and. <laughs> What it was going to do, I remember being like, we can turn this off if you want He did. To. He even
4: fell asleep in it. He was like, I'm just going to like. like, maybe
2: it. if I fall asleep, she'll fall asleep too, and she won't see the end of it. Because it, it was totally in that period where it's like, any day, we're going to have sex for the first time. Could be tonight. It was in that period. And so I was like, I fucking blew today. Today's a wash because i decided to recommend watching kids
4: instead of Pulp fiction
5: <laughs> another hot tip for the cinema possessed audience you don't you don't want to have sex with someone and you don't yeah. know how to talk about it just put on kids and... if you're a virgin out that's there that's
4: true yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but i do going back to i do remember watching all of them together and seeing kill bill and all that stuff in the theaters and i remember when you showed me jackie brown i loved it from the first second I saw it.
2: Yeah, this was the first Tarantino movie I ever saw. Really? Uh, think I think, really? I, I, think wow. I mentioned it on a past episode, but went to a family reunion. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All my uncles had just rented the movie. It had just come out on video, and they were quoting it all weekend long. Came home, and me and my dad both were like, well, we got to see that movie. And I don't think my dad had seen a Tarantino movie. He knew who he was, but he had never seen any of them. And... um we went and rented it, and at that point, like I already knew so many of the great lines, so I was just primed to love the movie. <laughs> it's always been top three for me, and I will say it might be top two at this point.
4: Once Upon a Time is still top one. It's hard. Well, it's uh, *Inglorious Bastards*. Once Upon a Time is, time is
2: one. It's you really been saying that. It's really hard. *Inglorious Bastards* was my one for a long time, but when I really stop and think. About the the Tarantino movies that I put on the most now, currently, it's either Jackie Brown or it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. As far
4: That's as surprising. ones that I like,
2: I crave and I want to watch, and it's just the
4: feeling that they give you.
2: We've seen this movie multiple times in the theaters. Uh-huh. We've seen it projected on film at CineFamily. We saw it in we the saw cemetery screen at
4: Hollywood Forever Cemetery well, at last summer.
2: Cinespia. We've seen this movie a lot. We yeah. end up watching it kind of a lot. So. And I
4: never, ever, that's the reason why I know that I can confidently say this is my favorite movie is because I never get bored. I never am like, okay, I could skip through this mm-hmm. part and get to this other part that I like. It's like every scene is just filling me with more and more joy because it hits all the quarry things. Heist, mm-hmm. love it. Incredible dialogue, love it. Great actors, love it. Beautiful love story. Love it. Like it has all check, check, checkity check mm-hmm. style. Incredible. The best soundtrack. This is the number one soundtrack I play above any movie ever. If I'm like cleaning the house, if I'm driving, going on a road trip, I always play the Jackie Brown. soundtrack. It might be the yeah. best
2: soundtrack. That's what's, best what's soundtrack your favorite. For sure. Is it your favorite of the Tarantino <clears throat> well, soundtracks?
5: First, I was... Yes, definitely a favorite soundtrack. First, I was going to say Kill Bill Volume 1 was my introduction to Tarantino. Oh, mm-hmm. I remember. I remember when the movie came out. I was so into it because I was very into martial arts cinema at the time and yeah. anime. So it was like unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I remember people saying, "Oh, it's a Tarantino movie," and being like, "I have no clue what that, that doesn't make any sense to me. What is a Tarantino movie?" Uh, and is that a pasta? Yeah, is, is that a is that a spider? It's a
0: sp-
5: <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted to say I can't. Uh, I think Jackie Brown is his best movie. You think I, so? You do think you? it's his best movie? I do. Yeah. I, I, but yeah, I can't, definitely. I wanted to respond to once upon a time in Hollywood. I haven't seen it enough, enough times to fairly categorize it, but I do think like if I, I can't imagine living without, I, I can't imagine having once upon a time in Hollywood and not having kill bill. Like if it's an either or for me. I just, mm. I can't live in a world without Kill Bill. It's just Bill so fantastic. damn good. And it makes me feel things that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doesn't. And I, I do, taking Kill Bill out of the, the equation between the uh, Jackie Brown and Once Upon a Time, I just feel like Once Upon a Time has just like too many gimmicks for me to be mm-hmm. considered such a great movie. And Jackie Brown has just solid substance all the way through yep. it and doesn't rely on things like joke, like, like it once upon a time in Hollywood to me just feels very gaggy. Like right. even down to the, the uh, Manson gag, mm-hmm. the violence gag at the end, mm-hmm. the flamethrower gag. It just loses me I feel you. Um, where um, I can recognize all the, all the things that you're feeling about that movie. I feel them too. And I, I love it, but I, I don't
2: know. I feel you. That, that, that brings up kind of an interesting conversation that relates to Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, and, and Tarant- where Tarantino's at now. This movie was hotly anticipated, Jackie Brown. Came out three years after Pulp Fiction. The, the Tarantino cult was running hot at this point and disappointed a lot of people because it's not that go for broke, adrenaline shot to the heart pace and speed and shock of Pulp Fiction. So a lot of people felt underwhelmed by Jackie Brown. And Tarantino himself stated that like, he made the point of making a movie that was not in any way trying to top Pulp Fiction, but was in fact trying to kind of go under it, trying to get to the same place, but going in a different direction. It was reviewed decently, but even critics were sort of like Maybe this kid that we put all our money on doesn't quite have it. The reception was pretty lukewarm for the movie. It didn't make nearly as much money as Pulp Fiction. And then he didn't make a movie for like six years. And then his next movie after Jackie Brown was Kill Bill. Complete and total stylistic and tonal departure and very violent. And it's notable that this movie doesn't even really have shocking violence in it, which is maybe the only Tarantino movie in his catalog that doesn't have like a scene of extreme shocking violence. There's violence in Jackie Brown, but it's pretty tame. And there's only like two or three moments of it. They're memorable, but they're not like explicit, I wouldn't say. There's theories that because of this sort of lukewarm reception to Jackie Brown, he pivoted and he was like, oh shit, I need to go back to doing some shocking Mm -hmm. shit. And then from then on, you can now guarantee that his movie is going to have a shocking burst of violence in it. And all those movies are successful. You know, the audiences came to Kill Bill. The audiences came to Inglorious Bastards. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it has a lot of elements of Jackie Brown. It's in a lot of ways is a hangout movie. But like you said, it has those kind of gimmicky things where all of a sudden there's this extreme violence that almost feels tacked on. Like he's got to have it in there. It's so good. It's great. I love it. But I know exactly what you mean. It is like, he's like, I got to put it in there. And he's probably smart to do so. If he didn't do that, he probably wouldn't be selling as many tickets as he sells. and the evolution of a filmmaker style does involve audience feedback. but there are people out there that are like, I dropped off after Jackie Brown because I don't like his post kill bill mm-hmm. era. And people wonder what would his career be like if Jackie Brown had been as celebrated as Pulp Fiction? What are the kind of movies he would have made if he knew, okay, this is okay for me to like? But I think go- when will be talk, this chill.
4: Yeah. But I also do think when you talk about him, I mean, this is like such like a obvious, like not a hot take, but like it's insane. Like he did to doesn't have any misses like all like no, yes he, i guess maybe he could have gone in a different direction but like kill bill is a masterpiece and like every movie yeah. he, he's made since then you
2: can't say he made the wrong decision It's like
4: kind of insane to me like i feel like it's a cliche to be like quinn tarantino is my favorite director but it's like when you look at his movies he doesn't have an insane amount of movies mm-hmm. but like all of them are brilliant they're all so good and most directors do not have that track record. No. Like Spielberg or, you know, like there are stinkers up in there. Mm-hmm.
2: No, I mean, I agree. He, he's I got- don't think there's
4: any Tarantino movie that people would be like, that's a stinker.
2: The only two would be Death Proof and this. are the. But and those but,
4: people are so wrong. Both <laughs> of those
2: are wrong and idiots, only idiots would say.
5: Re- reser- only Reservoir Dogs is uh, what I would consider to be the least interesting of 100% I agree but
4: the fact that that's his first movie it's like okay you get, yeah. you know. yeah, you
5: get
2: a pass it's your first film
4: well let's take a quick break we'll be right back to talk
2: more about Jackie Brown
0: I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me
2: Welcome back to Cinema Possessed, and we are talking Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. I'll just real quickly say, um, this DVD that I have came out in the year 2002, five years after the movie. Never was released on DVD until this. That's crazy. And he does a little introduction at the beginning of the DVD that we watched. It was kind of cute. He's he's dorky, but it's cute. And he wanted to make sure that it was a really good one. And I will say, this is a fucking awesome DVD. It's got great packaging. It's clearly made with love. It's got a ton of special features on there, multiple making ofs, interview with Tarantino that's an hour long, uh, tons of trailers for all these movies. It has Siskel and Ebert's episode where they review Jackie Brown. As press materials when he goes on MTV and promotes the movie, which is where he does a lot of cringy stuff. Um, <laughs> but it's a great package. Movie opens with a great old title sequence. Pam Greer on a moving sidewalk at an airport.
4: I usually hate credit openings. You always say that, but yes. This one is perfect.
2: It's so good, and it's
5: uh, referencing that shot from The Graduate. The opening right, credit yeah. sequence of Graduate mm-hmm. has Dustin Hoffman landing. He's doing a similar Ooh. motion to Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence.
2: Yeah. Jackie Brown does it better. And it's referencing uh, Across 110th Street, which is a, an actual movie as well.
4: Killer song. It's Killer a great song.
2: song. Mm-hmm. We've talked before about um, you know, when a movie uses a needle drop really well, it owns it. And it seems kind of sad that the song was created for a movie, but Tarantino yeah. fucking owns it. He owns yes. the song because he uses it even better than the actual real movie uses mm. it.
5: That's how the cookie crumbles.
2: <laughs> Sorry guys, he uses it, and if anybody else dared. You know, if I heard across 110th Street on some fucking TV show, I'd turn the show off right <laughs> just on principle alone. You can't well, use it.
5: Yeah, I mean, a TV show would almost be better than another movie.
2: Yeah. A movie would be would be gagging. Yeah. I would <laughs>
4: gag. <laughs> Pamper is so such a babe. She's such a babe.
2: Yeah, she's awesome. And the, the, right away, this movie is like, here it is. This is your goddess. She's just standing there. Yeah. But and this perfect. is her
5: baby perfect i don't know if it was tarantino i don't know if it was the costume designer but that blue oh my god is the coloring a in this movie perfect is, choice yeah. um that's a great halloween costume
4: yeah 100 percent.
5: it would be the her and ordell roby
2: ooh, oh my that's god a couple, Such that's a good a couple costume let's get them all in there you could be lewis yeah uh-huh. lewis would be a fun costume too it could be Bridget yeah. Fonda. I also watched an interview with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, too, and he was talking about this movie, and he talks about how it's so smart that Tarantino um, chooses to shoot Pam Grier in a lot of profiles because she has a very unique and beautiful profile.
4: Oh, that's so true. And I have
2: to agree. And for those who don't know, Pam Grier was a huge star in the 70s in black exploitation films like Coffee, Foxy Brown, a lot of women in prison movies. Um, Tarantino was a huge, huge fan of her, but at this point in time... She was working here and there. She was in like Escape from L.A., so I would assume John Carpenter was probably a fan of hers. Nobody was casting her in lead roles, which is another thing you got to give credit to Tarantino for. Even still today, big, famous white directors were not casting black women in lead roles. So it's just like you got to give props to that. And and we should say, too, that the source material, uh, Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, the character is not black. Her name is Jackie Burke, and she is a blonde-haired white woman in her 40s. Oh,
4: wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah.
2: And according to Tarantino, his reasoning for doing that was simply because when he thought about the character of Jackie, she has to be strong. She has to be smart, confident. She has to be able to stand up to both criminals and the cops and police. And when he was trying to think of actresses that felt like they could embody that, he just said the first actress to come to his mind was Pam Greer. Yeah.
5: And there's a scene coming up later we'll highlight uh, where I feel like really yep. showcases <laughs> yep
2: that well.
4: Did Tarantino just read this book and like optioned it or what was the story? Yeah, so Elmore
2: Leonard, he was a popular sort of pulp novelist. Uh, A lot of his movies have been adapted. He did Get Shorty. He did 310
4: like He has
5: like 20 to 25 movies that Hollywood made.
2: Out of Sight, the Steven Soderbergh movie, that television show Justified. Tarantino had always been a fan of his. There's a story that he's told that when he was a teenager, he stole an Elmore Leonard novel from a bookstore and got caught. And Tarantino has gone on the record before saying that his writing was an influence on his own writing as well, particularly gave him permission to allow characters to talk about anything. You know, He was like, you read an Elmore Leonard novel and the characters are talking about the movies they went and saw. And so he was always a huge fan. And coming off of Pulp Fiction, he didn't immediately have a script lined up and ready to go. So he had to kind of figure out what he wanted to do. And he read the book and just kind of fell in love with it. And he said when he read it, he could just see the movie in his head. It would just immediately started picturing it.
5: But him and uh, Avery, uh, option three Elmer Leonard Mm -hmm. books, Killshot, Freaky Deaky, Rum Punch. The Switch. Didn't option The Switch. Not The Switch. But The Switch is like the prequel to Rum Punch, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I started reading. I mean, I don't know. I said, right. I know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) I started reading it because I wanted to see the origins of Ordell Mm -hmm. and Lewis. Oh, you started reading the switch. Yeah. Cool. So I'm halfway through the switch. It's fun. Did you read read Rum Punch? Not yet. I was going to do switch first and then get to Rum Punch. I didn't
2: reread it, but I read Rum Punch when I was in 11th grade. And I remember it being pretty faithful. To the to the movie, there's a few added scenes. There's like the whole neo-Nazi subplot in Rum Punch, but for the most part, it's pretty much the same movie. The dialogue is quite different, obviously.
5: Just before we get too far, uh, you brought up black exploitation, and uh, in the group that I'm with now, we watched Jackie Brown, and I mentioned that somebody was like, "Oh, what's black exploitation?" They didn't even know what exploitation meant, and Mm. so I had I was like beginning to describe. Both, but just curious, what you, how would you define exploitation cinema? Maybe specifically black exploitation to somebody who didn't know what it was at all.
2: Yeah, I think exploitation cinema is movies that are exploiting taboo subjects rather than exploiting uh, uh people. Movies that promoted themselves on, come see this movie that's going to have a lot of blood, gore, sex, boobs, stuff like that. Most of the time, these were independent productions. These were movies that were made particularly cheap. Black exploitation basically is just the black uh, subgenre of that, where it's made with black actors or made by black filmmakers. A lot of them were made by white filmmakers, but that's really where it, it comes from.
5: Right. My understanding is that even though that term comes from the outside and sounds very negative, with the exception of the white filmmakers who were making black exploitation movies overall, even though the material is violent, over the top, hypersexual, there's still a lot of positivity to that subgenre and gave a lot of opportunities to actors and filmmakers and showing black characters in a way that that were heroic, larger than life, fighting mm-hmm. against the man, fighting against the
2: system. It's looked back on in cinema history as a movement, you know, as as something that was, was critical. And absolutely, for somebody like Pam Greer, it was her entire career for the first probably 20 years of her career was doing those kinds of movies and made her a star. We see that she's an airline stewardess for a shitty airline called Cabo Air. But then we basically leave her after this opening sequence, and this is where we get our little short film. And in this short film, we get introduced to our villain. Guys, we're in Villains Month. <laughs> all September long, we're talking villains, and today we got a fucking great one. Incredible his name is- villain. Ordell Roby. So He's got this long ponytail, a, a braided goatee. Sam Jackson is totally a hair actor. We've talked about there's posture actors. He's a hair actor. He's got a hair guy who, who makes all of his wigs for him. And apparently this was all Sam Jackson's idea. <laughs> love that. And he looks fucking fresh. He's got K- Kangol hats on. I wanted a Kangol hat so oh fucking bad. my God, bad. that's- I'm so, glad, so glad you- that I'm that glad I didn't away. get one, but I wanted one bad. I know what I would have- I would have probably worn it one time. Uh-huh. Would have felt embarrassed. I did that with you: the, You, you like would have
4: gotten Like your slim shady sweatshirt.
2: <laughs> one time I spent, I, I saved up a bunch of money and I bought an $85 uh, shady hoodie. From Eminem's clothing brand. <laughs> oh my God. I thought it was so fucking awesome. I couldn't wait. Got it in the mail, tried it on. I looked fresh. I wore it to school the next day, and the entire day I was like, I feel like such a phony baloney. <laughs> I feel like everybody's looking at me. I never wore it again. Yeah. That $85 $85 I never got hood into, just hung up I never got
5: into like fashion or cool clothes when I was a kid. Because one, my parents wouldn't buy it for me. And two, if yeah. I did, I always
2: felt fake. Yeah. I didn't want to change from pants to shorts in the summertime. <laughs> I was like, if I switch to shorts, people Kids are gonna make are fun so of me. So
4: dumb. Kids are <laughs> the dumbest.
2: You know who was wearing the Kangol hats? Tarantino. Boy, he lo- yeah. He's in all the behind-the-scenes it's, stuff, he's wearing the Kangol hats. It's wow. Embarrassing. Uh, we open on Television, chicks who love guns is playing. Great fucking dialogue in the sequence. You got Ordell, Sam Jackson sitting beside Robert De Niro who plays Louis Gara. And he's basically just talking guns with them.
1: And that there's a Tech Man, little cheap ass spray gun made out of South Miami. They retail for three eighty. I get them for two, sell them for eight. They advertised this Tech 9 as the most popular gun in American crime. Can you believe that shit? It actually says that in the little book that comes with it. The most popular gun in American crime. Like they proud of that shit.
3: I love my Tech 9. Let me run this up. Oh,
1: now check this out this gun here. Now, this here vehicle. is a Styro AUG. Styro AUG's a bad motherfucker. Listen. It's it's expensive too, man. Made in Austria. And my customers don't know shit about it, so there ain't no demand for it.
2: And he explains to him that he's a dealer and that he's basically got a million dollars lined up. Half of it's coming from Mexico. Once he gets it, he's basically going to be set for life. Spend the rest of my life spending.
5: I feel. I feel like Robert De Niro is playing a character here. I've never seen him
2: yeah, before I wrote down or the same since. Thing. We said that we said this about Max Katie in last week's episode, and, and it's yeah, kind of fun. It's like it again
4: here the the same type of character as Max Katie is like somebody who just got out of prison, but such opposite spectrums. Mm-hmm.
2: Tarantino yeah. said that his his <laughs> his direction to De Niro was to he wanted Lewis to have the body language of a pile of dirty clothes. <laughs> So perfect. And apparently De Niro was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Oh, and
4: he did. He's so good. There's something, I know this sounds bad too, but like there's something so like kind of sexy about Robert De Niro in this movie. He's like hot. Yeah, he's cool. He really
2: wanted to play Max Cherry. He read the script and he was like, that's my role.
4: No way.
2: But Tarantino, when he before he even finished the script, Tarantino had thought of Robert Forrester and was perfect. he was like, I was writing the script and I was imagining Robert Forster and I knew he was perfect for the part, but I knew that somewhere along the way, people were going to start coming for me for that role. Gene Hackman was going to want to play that role. Paul Newman was going to want to play that role. Oh, that would have
4: been good. Harvey too.
2: Weinstein was going to be coming up saying, you need to cast fucking Warren Beatty. You need to be getting big people. So he said before he even finished writing the script. He saw Robert Forrester at a coffee shop in LA and he said, and he had seen him a couple of times. So he knew it was like his regular spot. And he was like, in order to lock myself in so that I wouldn't even be tempted by the bigger name actors, I just went up to him and I said, hey, I'm writing you a role in my movie and it's and it's yours.
4: Chills. Can you imagine Quentin Tarantino coming up to you and saying, I'm writing a role for you? Yeah. And he
2: was like, I purely just did it so that I couldn't change my mind, so that I had to just go with him. And so when Robert De Niro read the script and was like, I want to play Max Cherry, he was like, I legitimately already offered it. It's like, it's already his role. I can't do it. And De Niro asked him, he was like, can you do me a favor? I understand, you know, like he's, if he's who you want, he's who you want. But can you just see how he would be in the part of Lewis? Can you like audition him to play Lewis? And if you don't like it, then we can. then, then you don't like it. And so he did. He went and he had Robert Forrester read for the role of Lewis. And he was like, he's just not everything that makes him perfect for Max Cherry made him not make yeah. him horrible for Lewis. And so he did it. And then he went back to De Niro and he was like, sorry, I guess this just ain't gonna work out. You know, he's, he's just not right for Lewis. And then De Niro apparently was like, well, let's talk about Lewis. Like, uh, what, what do you think? And he's like, are you Willing to play Lewis, you know he's a, he's a much smaller part, and he was like, I mean, I just want to be a part of this movie. Oh, and so he was like, Well, yeah, I think you would make a fucking great Lewis. And they started talking about it, and he was like, I'll do it. He just wanted to be a part of the next Tarantino movie.
4: Wow,
0: wow,
2: and he's perfect. He is. Yeah. He's he's so subtle and funny. He's kind of an idiot, but when he's dangerous, you you understand why he is dangerous. The same thing for Sam Jackson.
4: It's the perfect villain. It's a villain that is. So charming mm-hmm. and fun. He's a pretty and fun you hang. Like, yeah, good time. If you met him and at a bar, can... you would have a
2: great conversation yeah. with him.
4: Yeah, the but turn.
2: But he's dangerous. And by the end of the movie, He's pretty scary. Yeah. Bridget Fonda plays Melanie. She's uh, one of Wardell's many girlfriends. It's this is blonde haired surfer gal. They have a pretty contentious relationship. You see it in this scene. They, they play some phone games. Kinda, Corey makes me answer the phone. I'm, I feel like I'm the Melanie in the relationship <laughs> for sure. Because she won't, Corey won't call a doctor's appointment. Hey, or that's not necessarily Schedule necessarily a true, plumber.
4: But kind of true, Yeah. <laughs>
2: Uh, I think Bridget Fonda is fucking great in this movie. So good. It's sad that she's stopped working. She's, she hasn't. She basically retired from acting many years ago. She hasn't been in a movie I think since like the early 2000s. Um, she's but she's so great good. in this movie. I love her in Simple Plan. Lake Placid, pretty solid actress, and she's awesome. She has a very like um, sinister vibe throughout this whole movie. You can tell she's a schemer, and you can tell she's a, a button pusher for sure. She feels like a character that didn't grow up in crime. Probably grew up rich, because you learn later that she's like traveled to Japan for mm-hmm. periods of her life and stuff. So she probably comes from wealth, but she's got that sort of like uh, sociopathic personality. You can feel that coming through. So she's she feels in the right world with Ordell. Ordell ends up getting a phone call from um, Beaumont. He's calling from jail. He needs to be bailed out. He's been caught with uh, one of Ordell's guns. And so Ordell goes to Max Cherry to bail him out. We get to meet Robert Forrester. Robert Forrester got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this role.
4: Should have won. Not in this scene, but in the scene where he meets Pam Greer for the first time, Jackie mm-hmm. Brown. Justin, the Jack and I have talked about this before, but I feel like Max Cherry is Jack's dad. Oh, Yeah. Like there is such John Bishop vibes from Max Cherry. It's yeah. wild,
2: which is a high compliment. High compliment. High
4: Huge compliment, compliment, compliment to both my
2: dad and to to Robert Forrester. But if yeah. yeah, if anybody, if I was to cast anyone to play my dad, it would absolutely have been Robert Forrester. Uh, yeah,
4: the way in which he falls in love with Jackie Brown reminds yeah, the me of that. It's like, the
2: I, way he he dresses, his uh-huh. mannerisms, the way he speaks, the the
4: soft spokenness about him. Like calm, even keeled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. He's instantly lovable. Yeah.
2: Even in this scene where he's kind of, he's not standoffish towards Ordell, but he's like, he knows who he's dealing with. He's sizing up Ordell, uh, but he has to deal with people like this every day.
5: You see John Bishop uh, taking a taser and walking into some (laughs) man's house late at night and waiting for him on the
2: couch. (laughs) You know, in another life. In another another life. life. In another life. I love my favorite detail in this scene is is Lewis is with Ordell at the at the Bail Bond's office and he's kind of just like bumping around in the background and it's clearly kind of like making Ordell a little nervous. So he's like, Hey Lewis, go go, why don't you hang out in the car and listen to some radio? And he gives him his keys and he <laughs> yeah, says, he like because he he, he, he's fresh out of prison. He doesn't he doesn't know what this new technology is <laughs> of like keys that o- unlock the car. And he's like, What do I do here? And he's like, press a little button, you hear this. Mm-mm-mm. And then you follow Lewis outside and you hear the noise of the car, and it's exactly. exactly... Exactly the way Sam Jackson like does it in his voice. Just a fun little detail that I've always loved.
5: uh, A grace note.
2: He finds out that Beaumont is potentially going to have to serve 10 years for the crime. Sam Jackson's like, Beaumont doesn't have a doing time kind of disposition, as he says. Right. (laughs) He'll do anything and everything to keep himself out of prison, including Mm -hmm. telling them anything and everything about my ass. (laughs) So he gives Max Cherry the money to bail him out. He gets bailed out, and then we follow Sam Jackson to, to Beaumont's house. We see that Beaumont is played by Chris Tucker, who's so fucking funny in this. Oh, my
4: God. He's so good.
2: At this time, I feel like so many movies that I was popping into my DVD player had Chris Tucker in them. Rush Hour, Friday, uh-huh. Dead Presidents, The Fifth mm-hmm. Element. Damn.
5: This. He was in a lot of shit. I got to revisit Fifth Element. Well, Great or maybe film. we got to revisit yeah. it on the we pod. Should, we,
2: should, we should watch it I on the pod. To. And he he was another one that kind of disappeared for a while. He's back now. But sort of Chris Tucker. Well, he was an air.
4: Oh, He's yeah, he just an air, air. That's this true. year. That's true.
2: But yeah, he took a long, long break. Literally yeah. like after Rush Hour 3. He was known for improvising everything. He was the kind of actor that came on set and just basically made up his own dialogue. Mm. But he told Tarantino, the script is so good. I don't want to change a thing of it. But he did apparently throw in a few ad-libs that are pretty hysterical. And I love this sequence, too, because Sam Jackson is just playing Beaumont like a fiddle. He's making him feel good. He's like, I got a lawyer. He's going to get he's going to sick the junkyard dogs on him. He's my own personal Johnny Cochran. Makes him feel good. And he's like, I did, you, can you just do me a favor tonight? I hate to do someone a favor and then <laughs> hit him up for a favor. And he tells yeah. him that he's got to go make this deal with some Koreans. <laughs> he needs him to hide in the trunk. There's a shot here when they're walking to the car that um, I think I mentioned on the Evil Dead episode when they're walking past this fence and the fence is like, it's a dolly shot and the fence is moving across the, the lens in the foreground and as it's moving across every bar that goes across the frame, it's going like. And I've always interpreted that as maybe a little nod to that moment in Evil Dead when it passes the floorboards and the floorboards go whoomp womp, womp. I always thought maybe that's what gave Tarantino the idea to, like, put those little sound Mm. effects in there as it's passing. Great one angle, classic Tarantino shot, point of view of the trunk. You see him convince Chris Tucker to get in the trunk with a shotgun.
1: Now, look, all you got to do is lay in here and hold on to this motherfucker, all right? I'm going to tell him I'm going in the trunk to show him the goods. When I open the trunk, you pop up and rack this motherfucker.
6: Man, fuck that shit. I ain't finna
1: shoot nobody. I ain't saying nothing about you shooting nobody. All you gotta do is hold on to it. They'll get the idea.
6: Man, you must be out of your fucking mind if you think I'm finna get in this dirty ass trunk. We ain't going nowhere but to Koreatown, man. You ain't gonna be in here no more than ten minutes. Man, I ain't riding in no goddamn trunk for no minute, man. why I can't ride up front with you. You can't ride up front with me. The surprise element is 90% of it. I'm sorry, man, but I ain't getting no goddamn trunk. <sighs>
1: I can't believe you do me like
6: this. Do you like what, man? I just ain't climbing in no goddamn dirty-ass trunk. Man, I got a problem with small places, no? Well, I
1: got a problem with spending $10,000 on ungrateful peanut head niggas to get them out of jail, but I did it. And how small was that jail cell, motherfucker?
6: Look, man, I know I owe you. You got to bring all if this If you stuff. owe me, then get your ass in this trunk. Man, I want to help you, but I will not be locked in no goddamn trunk or no car.
1: You think I want to spend $10,000 on your ass, huh? Man, I know you are Do you, you think I wanted to out. spend $10,000 on your ass? Of course you yes didn't, no? man, but
6: you Nigga but the that that's the only
1: way I could help you, right? So that's what I did. Now, look, man. All I'm asking you to do is get in the trunk, hold this fucking shotgun, and point it at these bullheads when I open it.
6: You the catch your nigga off guard with this shit. Look here, look here, look here. I tell you what.
1: When we get through fucking with these Rins, me and you go to Roscoe Chicken and Waffle on me. Think about it now. That Skull special, smothered in gravy and onions, side of red beans and rice, some greens. <laughs> That's good Man.
6: <sighs> exactly how long I gotta be in this motherfucker.
2: He gets in, and this is fucking awesome because he turns on the radio and Strawberry Letter 23 comes on. This is like probably my favorite needle drop in the movie. So cool. He reaches into the glove compartment, he puts on a pair of black driving gloves, gets his pistol ready. And then in one shot, you see the car drive, the camera cranes up, and all he does is just go down the block, turn, go into this little abandoned alley, and from like a high bird's eye angle, you just see him in the distance, get out of his car, open up the trunk, pop, pop, put two in him, close it.
5: Two things. One is is a reaction people had who had never seen this movie before, which I thought was funny. Watching it in a group of kids, there's like a... a Nineteen-year-old through twenty-seven. Okay, no one's seen this movie before. Sam Sam Jackson. It closes the trunk on Chris Tucker. Drives away. Pulls into the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Gets out of the car, and one of them says, "Wait, I thought he was going to Koreatown."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
5: Opens the trunk, shoots him, and kills him. And they're like,
0: "Oh shit!"
5: And then they they go, "Wait, so Koreatown wasn't real?" Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, my God.
4: That's hilarious.
5: And the other, my only critique in this movie, the only thing I think Tarantino made a bad choice on. What? In the moment when Tarantino gets into the front seat, puts on the music, puts on his gloves, we don't need Sam Jackson turning behind him smiling at Beaumont in the truck oh. and then driving away it's the final it's the it's the reveal sure, that sure. he's going to kill him it takes away from me the the element of surprise that could potentially come from someone who doesn't know that they're not going to Korea today. <laughs> <You know laughs> sure worked mean? on that group. <laughs> well, maybe he was on his phone when that happened. <laughs> um, it, it isn't clear yet why he would kill him until the yeah. next scene when yeah. he explains to Louis. Yeah. But do you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, do we... It's that a fun, one shot
4: could be taken It's
5: out. a fun pulpy thing. I get, It's a genre yeah. thing. It's a fun thing. But if he did
2: not include that, it might... We, it's hard we, just it's hard to say that the way that turning up the music and slowly getting the gloves out and the gun out
4: I do love that. To
2: me, it feels like it's telling you right then and there he's going to kill him. Two, I think two things happen at the same time with
5: that, which are good, for which I like. The sinister feeling that, wait, maybe something isn't right, but also he could be reaching for the gun because he's about to go to yeah, Koreatown, Koreatown. Sure. for a drug deal. So just like settle with that. Him looking back is basically like him winking at the camera saying, I'm not going to kill him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't
2: know yeah i get I get what you anyway, mean I get what you it, mean it doesn't on. it doesn't bump me too much, but I understand the i understand the note, and yeah, I love the scene too when he brings it to to Lewis because honestly it's de Niro just watching de Niro's face in Ugh. that scene is so funny,
4: so subtle
2: because he is he's he's trying to keep his cool, but he has a few moments where he goes like like as he's looking at the body and just kind of like... Mm-hmm. 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 where it's like, you can tell he's sort of like, okay, shit.
4: I'm in it. Shit,
2: now. I'm staring at a dead guy right here. And he crosses his arms and he just kind of keeps looking back and forth at him. And, uh, and the way Samuel L scared.
4: Jackson delivers all this too, with like a little bit of a smirk too. He's like, you know it's where I am right now? I'm right outside. Why don't you come mm-hmm. out here right now? And like,
2: he's threatening in this scene. And I think he's trying to threaten sure. Lewis a little bit of like, you know, if you want in on this? You got to be prepared to go all the way.
4: And then we I go would back say, to our qu- queen, thank right? you.
5: Thank you for the offer. I'm good. I'm going to sit <laughs> yeah. this one out, but good luck with what, with what you're doing. I think and you're I'll done. My parole officer not going to like this. I think it's too late. You're yeah. too late.
4: <laughs> if you say no, your jail. ass is in there too. Yeah.
0: But I'm it's like, what else? Did,
2: what does he have? And what's funny too, a little detail is is that in the all the scenes leading up to this, Lewis really looks like a fucking scrub. But then the next time you see Lewis, now that he's kind of partnered with Ordell, Lewis is is looking fly. He's got like his nice little button ups and he's starting to dress a little bit more like Ordell. The next, And his hair is all slicked back. So you can tell Ordell like probably is like, I'm going to buy you some clothes. You got to look a little bit nicer if you're going to be working on my team. <laughs> you can't look like a pile of dirty clothes. So yeah, then we're, then and that's like 25 minutes of the movie that we haven't, been with Jackie our star but it's because we got to get to know who we're dealing with we got to get to know our bad guy a little bit so that's been Ordell's moment so now we get back to Jackie and immediately she's coming off of a plane she gets stopped by two uh, ATF agents played by Michael Keaton and Michael Bowen oh people they would, are
4: so good
2: people know Michael Bowen from Kill Bill as Buck who came <gasps> to fuck
4: that's how I know him I was wondering
2: he pops up in a handful of Tarantino stuff he's a pretty funny actor he's so funny uh, and they, they stop her they check her purse. They find a shit ton of money that they clearly knew was going to be there. They take her in. They start questioning her. She's playing it cool. She's not saying who she's bringing this money to.
4: But they also, in that scene, tell her, like, we know it's Ordell. Like, yeah. they, it's set up that this is a bust for Ordell. For sure. That's like important.
2: But then they find some coke, some cocaine that had, that she didn't realize was in her bag. Cut to 99 years is such a long, long time. Long time. She goes to jail. That song that plays that 99 years song, longtime woman, is Pam Greer. That's Pam Greer singing that song. What? Wow. Mm-hmm. It's from the movie, The Big Dollhouse, 1973. The judge in the sequence too, is Sid Haig, who people might recognize from Rob Zombie's movies, like The Devil's Rejects and uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. But he is also in Coffee and Foxy Brown. He was in a bunch of those exploitation movies. And so uh, Sid Haig and Pam Greer go back a long ways. They're good friends. It was I think a She nice showed up reunion. on set
5: and uh, saw him uh, in the judge role and gave a chuckle because she didn't know. Start he was ragging be on him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so Max has to go now bail her out, and this is where we get sort of our little love sequence. Where when he goes to bail her out, he sees her walking down the path.
3: Take to the sky on a
4: natural high.
2: Just a great sequence. What I like about it too is like he's not pulling any gimmicks on it either. It's like it's not in slow motion. She looks like she's fresh out of jail.
4: But it is love at first sight.
2: But she looks awesome. And it's like, it feels very mature. It's like a mature little grace note.
5: It's nice. Yeah. Wes Anderson was freaking out in the theater. He's <laughs> like,
4: well, It should be slow. Well,
3: yeah. It should be 120 frames a second. Why isn't Nico singing a song? <laughs> Why isn't there a, 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 a
2: crowd of sailors walking behind her in the prison?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Oh.
2: Where's the luggage? <laughs> she didn't have any luggage with her? No Louis
3: Vuitton?
4: <laughs> Don't
3: tell me the ATF took that too. It's like
5: Wes Anderson's voice is becoming like William Friedkin.
2: <laughs> so then Ordell basically goes to do the same thing to her that he did to Beaumont. This
4: is the... I don't want to say best scene of the movie, but it is one of the best scenes of the whole movie. Starts with
2: another fucking great needle drop too. Johnny Cash's Tennessee stud. I love that that Ordell is sitting there listening to a live rendition of a Johnny Cash song before he's going to go murder somebody. The guy's got eclectic tastes. Super tense. He's got his fucking killer gloves on. We know he's got that gun in his pocket. Jackie invites him in. He's walking through the house. He's playing this little game where she keeps turning on this lamp, this little standing lamp. And as he's talking, he keeps kind of slowly creeping over and like dimming it down to make the lights go low.
5: I like the sound effect for that. It's, not, it's creepy. Yeah, little yeah.
2: electrical sound. That's an Ikea lamp. Tarantino actually talked about it in an interview. He said that, that at the time in 1997, that lamp was in everybody's apartment. He was like, everybody had that fucking Ikea lamp. And he was like, when I was talking to the set dresser about what should be in Jackie's apartment and what kind of lamp we should use for this thing, he was like, I had to be that lamp because Jackie would have had that lamp because everybody had that lamp.
4: That (laughs) was good. That was a good Tarantino impression. (laughs) It makes me hate him so much. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, and yeah he's like basically asking her like did you tell the cops about me and she's like I didn't which she's not lying she didn't tell him and he does a cool little uh, De Palma split screen here Mm -hmm. he gets a little playful in this sequence where as Sam is slowly creeping up on her uh, two silhouettes in the dark we get a split screen where we see Max Cherry drive into the house that he's going to he gets there he opens up the glove compartment and we reveal that his pistol has been taken and then all of a sudden at the
4: same time
2: click click
1: is that what i think it is
6: what do you think
1: it is i think it's a gun pressed up against my dick
6: well you thought right now take your hands from around my throat nigga
1: what the hell's wrong with you jackie shut the fuck up and don't you move
6: Oh, what is this? What the fuck is this?
1: Hey, 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 now that ain't got nothing to do with you. I carry that all the time. You've been talking to them police too much. Oh, the
6: police didn't try and strangle my ass. Oh, come on, girl.
1: You know I was just playing with you. Oh,
6: I ain't playing with you. I'm going to unload both of these motherfuckers if you don't do what I tell you to do. You understand what I'm saying?
1: Jackie, stop acting crazy. Do you
6: understand what the fuck I'm (laughs) saying? Yeah,
1: woman, damn. Now
6: sit your ass down on that sofa. See?
1: And she
2: sits his ass down, and he listens. And she tells him, I'm going to make a deal with your ass. Because I know you came here to fucking kill me. But here's the thing: I'm the only one who can help you get your money from Mexico, and I will do it. But you got to give me part of it. And if I end up getting arrested, you got to give me even more money. And then we're, we're then we're clear. He agrees. Little do we know, Jackie is planning on playing everybody. A She's double, got plans a good to play double cross. A little double cross. She's smart.
5: A complicated double cross, but a good mm-hmm. one. A
4: mm-hmm. great one.
2: Mm-hmm. Then we get a great scene where Max Cherry comes to get his gun back. And they have this really beautiful conversation about the sort of existential crisis of being in your mid to late 40s. I love, this is, really feels like my dad here. Too. Mm-hmm. This,
4: this whole scene this makes me think of my dad. Majorly. Max, how do you feel about getting old?
1: You're not old. You look great.
6: No, I'm asking you, how do you feel about getting older?
1: I mean, doesn't it bother you? It's not really something I think about.
6: Really?
1: Oh, I, I guess I got a little sensitive about my hair a few years ago, started falling out, so, you know, I did something about it.
6: How'd you feel about that?
1: I feel fine with it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. I did it to feel better about myself, and, you know, I do. I look in the mirror, looks like me. Yeah, but it's different for men. You know. I can't really feel too sorry for you in this department. I bet that except for possibly an afro, you look exactly the way you did at 29.
6: Well, my ass ain't the same.
1: Bigger? (laughs) Yeah. Ain't nothing wrong with that.
2: It's the most romantic scene in the movie to me. Even more so than their final kiss at the end of the movie. And uh, another theme that I see in this movie is an empowering theme of um, experience that comes with their age, especially if you compare Jackie to the rest of the group within Ordell's circle. Like if you compare her to Beaumont, she knows she's going to get killed. Beaumont has no clue he's going to get killed. He's young. He's stupid. She's had the experience to to know that this is what's going to happen. This is what the kind of guy Ordell is like. Same thing with Melanie. Melanie is also young and unaware. Melanie looks at Ordell as a complete idiot, which in some ways she's right. He is an idiot, but she's not at all aware of how dangerous he is. And she's not at all aware of how, how dangerous Lewis is. Mm-hmm. And it's her downfall. She's like poking at them in a way that I don't think Jackie would ever fucking do because Jackie knows she's been through this life. You got to trick them. And it ultimately it kills Melanie. Interesting thing though There is one other person, the only other woman in this movie that Mm -hmm. is of Jackie's age is Simone. And Simone-
4: Plays him too. Plays
2: him. Simone finds her opportunity to get her hands on $10,000 worth of Ordell's money, and she takes off. And you never see her again. And it's like, interesting, there's almost another, she Jackie Browns him before Jackie Brown Jackie Browns him. And there's almost like a maybe a little, we don't know, maybe she was scheming and plotting something too
4: these older women knows yeah. what's up
2: i like to think that at the end of this movie jackie and simone like meet up somewhere and like you know just give each other toast toast like we fucking did it girl we beat that asshole <laughs>
5: <laughs> what did ordell ever do for us jackie brown is super smart she plays everybody even the cops
2: mm-hmm. yeah do you think she plays max at all or do you think she's completely sincere with max
5: this is a great question maybe we should save it for the end
2: Mm,
3: okay. All right.
5: Because I have I have the same question for you too. I think the ending is a little ambiguous, but yeah, I have, I have theories. Yeah, me too.
2: I really like too. This movie captures something that um, felt very real to me. That idea of like when you're in a new relationship and you share like a song with somebody or you share a movie with somebody, and then that song or movie or thing <laughs> so sweet comes to just like define the other person to you, and you just want to like consume it all the time, like. It's exactly what it has. She plays this Delphonics record for Max, and then you get like this montage of Max going to the store and buying the tape of it. And every time you're in the car with him, he's listening to <laughs> it. So cute. And we had that when I when Corey and I first got together. I didn't know the Mountain Goats at all, and you were like really into the Mountain Goats. Uh-huh. And I didn't go to the store and buy their albums. I went to Kazaa and I downloaded all their Aww.
4: albums.
2: But I was like, I got to get into the Mountain Goats. And so for the longest time. The mountain goats made me think of you.
4: That's cute. That was Sufian for me, for you. That's why when I saw Call Me by Your Name and that movie starts with that, I immediately started sobbing.
2: Mm, mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Justin? That makes you think of us. Was Cape
2: Fear my Delphonics <laughs> record to you?
4: Yeah, what <laughs> was El-
5: yours Elmer to Bernstein's to theme chat. song to
4: <laughs> Cape Fear. <you> know. <laughs> 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 Jack walking with his long hair through the hallways <laughs> yeah. of Columbia. No, Jack is
5: Jack is definitely for me. Bonnie Prince Billy or mm. of Montreal um, of Montreal.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. makes sense. That makes sense.
4: Oh, you know who else and, is for me? Jack is the guy. The um, Bonnie Prince Billy for sure. That was a great one. Man, and, I gotta listen to
2: him again. I used to be yeah, so you were obsessed. And Bill.
4: the guy who's the drummer in the band. Uh, red hot chili peppers or well, he's not uh, the
2: drummer. John Frusciante? John Frusciante. Yeah, the lead guitarist.
4: Yeah, yeah, he's the other one who Ryan, mm-hmm. that that is so jack. Yeah, clean. I would mm-hmm. say
5: John Frusciante or Sufjan Stevens, but I was so into them before I met John yeah, that I yeah. don't those were a connection point but not right. like a defining point, but like yeah. new music that somebody introduces you to or something or mm-hmm. um that could define a person. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was really sad cuz I asked um uh, there a lot a lot of um People in this group I'm with love music and talk about music all day, every day. And when Robert Forster's in the, the rec- uh, music shop buying a cassette tape, I leaned over to someone and I, I don't know what made me ask this question, but I was like, have you ever bought physical music before from a store? And he oh. said, no. And wow. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I guess that makes sense when you grow up with Spotify.
4: yeah what's yeah.
5: what you know even you love music but you don't think to own it because you don't need to it's it's an yeah, the inconvenience. physical media is not part of it yeah, yeah. you love music you want to play it Ugh, everywhere you we are go, getting you know?
4: old we're getting old yeah. we're jackie yeah.
5: browning right yeah now. Mm-hmm. oh my life.
4: god something i wanted to bring up too earlier in this is that this movie feels so la to me yeah, but a it, very
2: specific kind of LA that feels very real.
4: Yes, even like the like seeing the beach outside of
2: Melanie's, Melanie's
4: apartment, like all of it just feels so authentic, Los Angeles. I love to me. the
2: area right outside of Max Cherry's bail mm-hmm, bonds office. Mm-hmm. Like that to me almost comfort. It's like very cozy. Yeah, the whole would movie you, has that. But
5: would you spend ten thousand to bail out Corey? Or would you yes. let her rot in jail?
2: No, I would spend the ten thousand dollars. I don't know. Would where you make you're her pay, pay it. you back? Yeah, would make that, your it? wife pay you back. <laughs> if you ever do have to get bailed out, Corey, I'm uh-huh. going to make sure to have Tennessee Stud queued up on the radio when you get into okay. the car. I like that. Just to give you a little
6: laugh.
5: <laughs> did you I'll have a bad? You... Did you have a bad night? <laughs>
2: <laughs> also, Justin, when he goes to Sharonda's house at the end, I thought that looked exactly like your house on the inside. Her My living house? room. Her living room looked like your living room. So, you know, you, your living room has those two small windows above the fireplace, right? Yeah. Same exact two small windows. The position of his front door is exactly where your front door is. The couch that Sharonda is like tweaking out on is exactly where your couch is. You think it was shot at my place? Dude, (laughs) I looked it up already. It's not. (laughs) But I did look it up. (laughs) That would have been been crazy. That that would have been mind blowing. (laughs) Unless it's the interior, because when they come out of the outside, outside it's it's not your place. Um, But maybe they shot a different interior. And it could be your place. So Melanie and Lewis kind of started it off. They get high together. Uh, They fuck. Very quick. Tarantino's (laughs) only sex scene. Interesting thing, when she walks away from this fuck session, you see just the teeny tiny tippy top of her butt crack. But I had this movie on VHS. (laughs) Hot tip, folks. You see more butt on the VHS. On the full screen, VHS, you see... Whole crack. Wow. Not, not crack hole. Don't get me wrong. You're not seeing crack hole. <laughs> I'm, Googling, I'm Googling this right now. But you're seeing hole crack. And this was something that I clocked when I was a kid. I remember, because I, I used to watch this movie all the time on VHS, and then I got this 2002 DVD, and I remember getting to that point and being like,
3: whoa, wait. There's not <laughs> enough crack. They're ripping me off on the crack. <laughs>
2: Oh, another fun thing, Justin, you might like this. On the TV at Melanie's house, there's always an old movie on. One of the old movies is Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, which Mm -hmm. stars Peter Fonda, which is Mm -hmm. Bridget Fonda's dad. Mm -hmm. It's a nice little nod. But then there's another moment in this movie where another movie is playing on TV, and it's a movie starring Helmut Berger, and it's called Beast with a Gun. Mm -hmm. I've never seen Beast with a Gun, but every time I watch this movie and that scene plays, the song that is playing from the movie is so cool sounding to me that I always end up looking it up. I've probably done this 10 times in my life where I get to the scene of the movie and I'm like, damn, that song fucking rips. And then I go and I like do a deep dive to try to figure out what the song is. You want to hear it? Yeah. This is the theme from Beast with a Gun. fucking cruise los angeles listen to that all damn day it feels very (laughs) tangerine dream to me yeah that's awesome is the movie good have you seen the movie i've never seen the movie never went and sought out the movie i just have it it literally only happens every time i watch this movie i i don't think about it in my day-to-day life so but i'm but maybe now i will And if uh, that's it seems like every version I can find, too, is like ripped from the movie, too. So if any listeners out there can track down the actual soundtrack with the actual recording of it, I would love to have that. I would load it up on my iPod shuffle. Wow. Maybe it would go right beside tubular bells in my running mix. Came out 10, uh, 20 years before Jackie Brown.
5: Exactly. 1977.
2: Oh, another thing I wanted to point out. So basically, we're kind of plowing through because this middle section of the movie is great. A lot of great stuff in it. Incredible. But it's really just her kind of planning this heist, heist and going back and forth, talking to different people and stuff. But one thing I wanted to point out is there's one one moment in the movie where Max Cherry decides he's going to go see a movie. And he goes to the Delamo Mall to 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 catch a flick, which I miss going to a mall to see a movie. I still do. Justin, you, you've done you? it recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: I think malls are coming back.
2: If they get the theaters back in there and they're... You know, they're they're well taken care of. I would love i i used to that's where I used to see i remember
4: there is one there's a mall in the Burbank. one, one. of
2: my most vivid memories is my parents holding my hand <laughs> running through a mall, going down the escalators to the movie theater. I didn't know what we were going to see. And when we got into the theater, it was Jurassic Park, baby. They surprised you or? I just don't think I was informed. I hadn't even heard of Jurassic Park. Mm. I was little. This is 1993. I was five years old. And I remember getting in midway through that shooter sequence Mm. and just being like, what the fuck movie are we watching? Wow. They came to school the next day, and everybody had seen Jurassic Park that weekend, and it was all anybody was talking about, and I was right there in the middle yeah. of the conversation.
5: I remember seeing it with my parents, but I don't know, I cannot say if I was leading the charge on that, or if my parents wanted to see it, or thought that I would like it.
2: Like, how did we end up there? Yeah, from my memory, I was not aware of it until they put me in the theater to see it. Mm-hmm. So anyways, Max goes and sees a movie. He comes out of the movie. As he's coming out of the movie, he sees Jackie. Because she's there, kind of scoping out the mall for, for the heist. And she says, Max, hey. And he's like, oh, hey, what you up to? Oh, nothing, just seeing a movie. And she goes, what'd you see? And then the scene cuts. Ugh. Leaves us fucking hanging. That's my note to Tarantino. What, what
4: movie, movie did Max I go know. see? It
2: was a bummer. That's, I'm wait, on the
4: edge of my seat. Did I that see? That's really the question you ask him whenever you meet.
2: I have a theory. Did I see? And are you about to say it? Well, maybe. One,
5: there is a song coming out of the movie. That's from Jackie yeah. Brown. Yeah. So he could be coming dun, out of
2: Jackie. He could be watching dun.
5: Jackie Brown, which would be super mm. meta. But there's also there's a wolf poster in the lobby. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I'm hoping he's going to see wolf because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw that wolf poster too. Yeah. Which, by the way, folks, little... might be coming down <laughs> the
3: pipeline.
2: Yeah. My, I, the, the thing is, every time I watch the movie, I'm like, say wolf. Please say wolf. <laughs> he doesn't say anything because the scene I just don't cuts. know if
4: Max Cherry would go see Wolf. I see Max Cherry's, it stars
2: Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer. Would, He's probably got a crush on Pfeiffer. Would John? He's going to see anything Nicholson's involved would in. Would John Bishop see Wolf? Of
4: course, John Bishop did
2: see Wolf, course, then, did see Wolf with Max. his son Jack Bishop. <laughs>
4: but do you think that John Bishop would have seen Wolf without his son Jack Bishop saying, can we go see Wolf?
2: We actually didn't see it in theaters. We watched it on HBO. Oh, well, There you go. Uh, we were happened to be in a hotel that night. <laughs>
5: You just you and your dad? He took Take, you us Take us back.
4: Take us back.
2: No, my mom was in the room too. It was me, my dad, and my mom. My brother was not there. I don't remember what trip we were on, but we watched Wolf on HBO. <laughs> and my dad was a huge Pfeiffer head. He loved Pfeiffer. Yeah. So I bet you Max Cherry loved Pfeiffer. Mackay,
5: Mackay Pfeiffer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Big eight-mile guy. <laughs> he was. My dad just loved mm-hmm. lose yourself.
5: Clockers. Big Clockers fan. <laughs> oh.
2: That's yeah. what I was
4: about to say. Big
2: O fan. Uh-huh. Um, so then we finally get the big money exchange. There's a few trial runs. Simone ends up taking off with some of Ordell's money in the process. They have to uh, recruit Melanie to be a part of the scam. We've
5: got to give Simone props for the, the her performance of
3: Ooh, Baby Love. Baby Love, Baby Love. Missing you, I'm Miss kissing you.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's great to think about this alternate movie where Simone's just, I'm just being Simone, but really she's, she's fucking planning her out. getaway because that's her house. And so it's unlikely that Simone just saw an opportunity to grab the money and then decided to upend her whole life and just vanish. She probably had plans in place. She may have even had her own Max Cherry somewhere in the mm-hmm. wings. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to think. Do you think she's a
5: fan of Simone thugs and harmony
0: Ooh.
4: Uh, <laughs> you
2: think she likes the movie Simone Birch? Uh,
4: I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> oh,
2: my God. Um... <clears throat> So the plan is that Ordell thinks Jackie's coming in from Mexico with his $500,000 in her purse. She's going to go to the mall. She's going to slip that into a a Billingsley bag and leave it there for Melanie to come pick it up. What the ATF, Michael Keaton, thinks is that that's also happening. (laughs) And he's planning on busting them when they come out with the money. So this sequence is cool. You know, people were expecting Tarantino to do his uh, nonlinear playing around because he'd done it in Pulp Fiction. He'd done it in Reservoir Dogs. And people were sort of surprised that this movie is relatively straightforward when it comes to the way it doles out its narrative. But this is kind of where he starts to play with it because we get to see this money exchange three times or four times? Three times, Three times, yep, Three different times in kind of like a Rashomon style where we see it from three different perspectives of what's happening. And basically what ends up happening is that Jackie, while on the plane to Mexico, switches all the money into a different thing, fills the Billingsley bag full of pulp fiction, a bunch of little pulp novels, puts just enough marked bills on top of it so that they would be culpable for it. And uh, when Melanie comes in to get the bags, she gives her basically a bag full of books with maybe like $50,000 on mm-hmm. it. And she puts a little cherry on top for her, which I think is a true act of solidarity. It ends yeah. up working out in her favor. It does. To, but I think it's actually Jackie Brown being like, hey, girl to girl. Yeah. yeah. I know what you're going you through. You mean like this you don't you. you don't
5: think Jackie is like setting her up as part. Uh-uh. Yeah.
2: Nope. I think that just happened, to, happened work to work out because she out. doesn't, yeah. she doesn't know Melanie's going to die.
5: Yeah. Because it uh, ends up corroborating her story. Like, exactly. We, uh, we brushed yep. over a funny little grace note when, uh, Michael Keaton's reading into the voice memo and he's describing the bag and he says the bag is white. Oh yeah. And everyone's like purple bag. The bag's purple but, <laughs> or sorry. No, he says the bag is purple. They say the bag is white. He's like, fine. White with purple lettering. Just a the stupid...
2: Beautiful woman. Just a yeah. beautiful woman <laughs> up front. Oh. Yeah, I like it. Everybody's so natural. That, that's the other thing, too, is like, this is Tarantino dialogue without feeling too mm-hmm. play-like. You know, sometimes Tarantino dialogue, while good, can sound a little bit like a play. This doesn't. This sounds real people talking. Just really funny, witty people, basically.
5: Um, Did it gross you out when Michael Keaton was eating? Chewing gum or eat What was he eating? With the fork at the restaurant, and he keeps jamming. Oh it, yeah, jamming the fork yeah. in his mouth, and you hear the fork. And you hear the little scraping gross. against his teeth. All yes. I can
2: think about in that scene, no joke, is how much I love A one steak sauce. Because he puts some A one on the steak, and every time he does it, I'm like, that's gonna be a
4: good bite. Ugh, I hate A one. You do? Sauce. Yeah. Oh, I, don't I love, love it. I don't like it. Wow, you guys are fools. It's trash. A one's good as hell. It is trash. <sighs>
2: <laughs> we need to get some for the house. No. So yeah, she she put she gives Melanie a bag full of books. She leaves the real money in the dressing room. She comes out with a fly ass pantsuit. Oh my suit god, on.
4: this pantsuit is so good. There's a
2: woman there who looks just like Heather Graham, but it's not Heather Graham. She's helps her buy the suit. She goes running out into the, to the lobby, pretending like Melanie came in, grabbed the bags, and took it. Meanwhile, Max Cherry walks in, plays a real cool, says his wife left his bag, goes in there. Gets a bag full of money, strolls on out.
4: Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Easy peasy, beautiful cover girl.
2: And then what we see in Melanie and Lewis's version of it is that Melanie and Lewis are fucking fighting the whole time. Melanie's making them late. Lewis it's is getting car. Is that irritated. The car?
4: Is that it? Is that it? <laughs>
2: he forgets where he parks the van. She is poking him the entire time. Nope. It that's not it.
1: This is Lewis.
3: <laughs> Lewis
1: this aisle, Louis? Is it? Louis? Louis? Is it this aisle, or is it the next one off? It's this one. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. You're positive? Don't seem sure to me. Hey, don't say... Don't say anything else, okay? Keep your mouth shut. Well,
3: I mean, don't say one fucking word, okay?
0: Okay, Lewis.
2: Turns around, just shoots her in the gut, flies off frame. A lot of the uh, kills are off frame in this movie. Her, That's the other shoots thing. Shoots her twice. Uh, the way she... Yeah. And again,
5: we have brought this up many times before. I'm a fan of violence happening off screen because i don't it's not that i don't want to see it but i think it's often more effective when you don't i don't need the camera to turn around and show me her getting blasted in yeah. the in the uh, chest and the stomach for me to feel the way she just goes off screen from behind mm-hmm. and we never see her again is
2: awful it's just mm-hmm. shocking it's yeah. shocking you know what d- just occurred to me as you were saying that, and I was thinking about all the deaths in this movie, save for the very end, not including Ordell's death, but Beaumont, Melanie, and Lewis, all three of those deaths happen at the end of a long take. So with Melanie, it's like an extended cam shot where they're walking behind them and they have this whole little back and forth before he then shoots her off the frame, And it's really shocking and very memorable. Lewis's death is the same thing. It's like this long extended two shot from behind the front seat of the car. And then Sam Jackson pulls the trigger and the blood splats on the window, but it's after sort of a long, probably like minute and a half dialogue scene. And Beaumont is that long extended crane shot that ends in his death. There's something about that. It's not, these deaths aren't happening in like a cutty scene. They're happening in these sort of like slow, extended takes that make them so um, visceral and memorable, even though you're not seeing much. It's effective. It's cool. Yeah, very effective. And I think Lewis's death is one of the most effective deaths I've ever seen, which is crazy because it's also like, it's burned into my brain. I remember the first time I ever saw it. Yeah. So he picks up, Lewis drives, he picks up Ordell. Picks him up from like a cocktail club. He sees that Melanie's gone. He tells him that he shot her. You shot her? (laughs) She was getting on my nerves. And he's like, "Uh, if you had to, I guess. But like, the last thing we want is that bitch surviving on us. Anybody but that bitch. (laughs) And then he opens up the bag and he sees it is filled with books, and he's like, What the fuck? He realizes it's Jackie Brown. Lewis tells him, Oh shit, now that you mentioned that, I did see Max Cherry. And this just pisses Ordell off. He's like, You saw Max Cherry at the mall when we're doing this thing, and you didn't think nothing of it. And he basically is like, You ain't worth a shit anymore. You are a liability. And shoots him, and the blood splatters onto the windshield of this van. And it's like the image of that scene. Has been burned into my brain since the first day I saw it. There's something so brilliant about the way he shoots it and the way he depicts it that's
5: like so memorable. Well, he—it's the way he shoots it. It's the fa- It's like why I feel like that scene in Hereditary at the end that everyone talks about is so much more effective because it's not just—it's not what Ari Aster's doing. It's that it's—he's doing it to Tony Collette. You know? Yeah. And there's something about like Robert De Niro in yeah. that moment. And also to Sam Jackson's line, what happened to you? You used yeah. to be beautiful.
3: Uh, Your ass used to be yeah. beautiful. <laughs> Such, a, Such a good line. Yeah. And he
2: seems so genuine when he says it yeah. too. It's like he's legitimately disappointed he's sad. with this friendship. <laughs> and De Niro's really sad too because he's like looking down yeah. at it and like just dying there in the front seat. It is a lot of blood on the windshield, but not an excessive amount that feels unrealistic, you know? It's, like, enough to be sort of shocking, but not, like, geysery, Kill Bill mm-hmm. style. And now Ordell basically goes into monster mode.
5: Well, also, monster mode, usually in a movie, is signified by some sort of physical change. hmm And what happens to Ordell Roby's hair?
2: Takes that ponytail <laughs> out. Takes that
5: ponytail out. And we get that... He lets oh, his, that his, his lion's hair. mane out. Yeah, I, I love, too, it's like you you get the... Tarantino's good at filming actors' heads from behind. Like, you have Marcellus Wallace in <laughs> yeah. Pulp Fiction with the Band-Aid, yeah. you know, on his neck. It's uh-huh. such an uh-huh. iconic shot. And then Ordell Roby on the couch with his little bald head sticking <laughs> yes. out from behind that couch that and the so long hair. And this, yeah. just
2: plumes of smoke coming from behind it. <laughs> and that awesome song. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Yeah: It's good. We got
5: I think if we steal anything from Tarantino, it's shooting it's shooting a villain from behind and, mm-hmm. and showcasing the back of their head in a way that no one has done before.:
2: <laughs> I'll say too, this movie is really controlled and almost sort of like doesn't the cinematography does not call attention to itself, really at all, but it's great. you know? It, it, the cinematographer is Guillermo Navarro who also shot Desperado and From Dusk Till Dawn. And then he did a lot of Guillermo del Toro stuff. He did Pan's Labyrinth and and Devil's Backbone. Um, But it's like, it's not showy. Uh, And Pulp Fiction, way showier than this in terms of camera movement uh, and and composition and camera style. Like this movie's pretty like, just sitting there. There's not a lot of like push-ins and dolly movements and stuff like that. And also it stands out from the rest of his filmography too, because this is one and only movie that was shot 16 by nine and not anamorphic. Mm.
5: do you know do you know does Tarantino storyboard? Does he draw storyboards? Does he have a storyboard mm-hmm. artist?
2: I've never once heard him talk about storyboards. I was
5: thinking too, like hearing actors talk about him that he's almost never at Video Village. He's always watching the performance. He's right by the camera. He's yeah. not watching the monitors, but the fact that he still gets such great shots and he's mm-hmm. not by monitor watching the actors is very interesting that's like a good skill that's a skill that a lot of people don't
2: have yeah he trusts his dps i assume he's like i'm hiring you for a reason
5: yeah it's good to know shoot it good to know
2: yeah he said that the reason why he didn't shoot this anamorphic was because he looks at anamorphic as being epic and he's like most of the time i want my movies to feel epic i wanted pulp fiction to feel epic but he's like, I didn't want this one to feel epic. He didn't want to top Pulp Fiction. So that was like one of his tactics it was like, I'm going to shoot this 16 by nine. Mm. Jackie gets Max to call Ordell. This is where you get the great behind the head shot when he calls him. And Max tells Ordell that Jackie's scared. She wants to give him his money.
5: I, lo- I love when Ordell says, uh, when Max tells him she's scared, he's like, I'd love to see that. Cause he is like, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it's a car- It's a villain, an awful villain recognizing that his opponent is is tough is smart smart. i like it yeah Yeah.
2: it's interesting too because the two people she's playing she's using fear for both um because this actually may not be in the real movie but did you see the deleted scene where she's telling max the plan for this I did. and she tells him you know what did you tell uh ray the atf agent and she said i told him i was scared And it's probably juiced up Ray. Like, oh, Jackie's scared. I got to come in and save her. Mm -hmm. And they're telling Ordell that she's scared because it's juicing up Ordell. Like, oh, fuck yeah, I got her scared. She's using her fear to trick these stupid asses. Also, we didn't mention too, but Michael Keaton's character, Ray Nicolette, also shows up in Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight as the same character, mm-hmm. Ray Nicolette. I heard he's whoa. dating JLo Lo in that
5: movie. Out of Sight. Basically, waited to cast that part until Tarantino did <gasps> to see.
4: Yeah, ah, mm-hmm. uh, that's cool.
2: Yeah, and they they apparently like got a um pushback because normally in that situation, like somebody holds the rights to the characters. Like Wein- Harvey Weinstein owned the character of Ray Nicolette at that time, and so technically usually out of sight would then have to buy it from them because it's a separate studio. But Tarantino stepped in and he was like, no, 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 no. We're me and Steven Soderbergh. We're doing this for fun. We're doing this because it's cool to do in the cinematic universes. Do not charge them for it. Like this isn't about making money. This is about doing something that's never been done before. And they got released in the same year. I think maybe out of sight was 98, Mm -hmm. but kind of fun. Same character movie worth revisiting. I used to love it. I haven't watched it in probably a decade, but I I used to watch it it as a kid. It was the movie that got me into Soderbergh. Yeah.
4: Because that's the one with George Clooney, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Sexy. Max comes over, super funny scene. Why the hell are you knocking on the door like the damn police? He's like, I thought you might be asleep. He's like, if you don't watch yourself, you're the one who's going to be asleep (laughs) forever. So fucking funny. Uh, they get in the car and um, this is just a funny moment that also makes me think of my dad. They get in the car. Sam Jackson's just like, I'm going to drive. He turns on the engine. Delphonics starts playing. And he turns and looks at Max and he goes, I didn't know you liked the Delphonics. Max just goes, they're pretty good. <laughs> exactly what my dad would yeah. say. I know in that situation, that is 100% exactly what my dad would say. <laughs> They're pretty good. Yeah. And then it's funny because it just keeps cutting back to Jackie preparing for them to get there and them driving and you just keep getting a continuation of the Delphonic song and they look so funny driving together. Mm-hmm. Just... Ordell and Max sitting side by side, the wind blowing through Ordell's long, straight hair mm-hmm. as the Delphonics, this beautiful, romantic song just playing between them Constantly, stare straight Constantly
5: ahead. cutting to Sam Jackson. Like, I, I couldn't so believe. So funny. I was like, this is it, right? And we're just, <laughs> now they're going to pull up? Nope. nope.
2: Coming back. You basically get the whole song in the journey. And I love this final climax moment. It reminds me of the climax of Sling Blade in that it's super quick. It's technically kind of underwhelming, but it's also like perfect. Oh, perfect. They walk in. It's super dark. He's got a gun. He's like, hey, Jackie, why are you sitting in here in the dark? And then this door opens and Michael Keaton steps out. It's the only light in the scene. Oh. And yeah, she goes, Ray, he's got a gun. <laughs> he shoots him like five times before he can even take his gun out. You know what else I love about Ray is that he's wearing sandals and socks in this scene too. <laughs> I love that he shows up to this sting where he he probably knows he's gonna shoot Orgell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And rather than put on tennis shoes, tactical boots, he's just got fucking <laughs> just, sandals and socks on.
5: It's just another casual day for a a, a white it's cop like shooting a, a black man. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And he, they they are pieces of shit. Michael Keaton is very likable. Because he's just a great actor, and he's super charming. But yeah, they're bad. They're They're, they're pieces awful. of shit. But she does thank him. She's I, like, remember when you told me you hope you get him before he gets me? Well, you got him. Thanks. Ugh, she Michael's,
4: just plays him like a fiddle. Slow
2: zoom on Sam Jackson's face. dead. His dead eyes.
5: Michael Keaton's best performance in the movie is just when he's walking down the hallway with his leather jacket. And he's just mm-hmm. like yeah. bug-eyed. <laughs> and is head is like moving around he doesn't say a word
2: he's great tarantino said that he fought him hard which i think is a thing that michael keaton does he offered michael keaton the part and michael keaton was like i just don't think i'm right for it i just don't know if i i just don't know if i know this guy and he like went back and forth and back and forth and then finally he was like can you just do it you know like do it as a favor for me and He was like, "All right, fine, I'll do it." And he and he was like, and he showed up day one. He was just the character; he had no trouble getting into it. He just like he was putting me through the ringer. He just wanted his ego stroke. That's what I think too, because I think I've heard the story before from other movies where it's like that's Michael Keaton's thing. He pushes back and pushes back and pushes back, and it is almost maybe like he needs his ego stroke.
5: Is Michael Keaton a good guy in real life? Do we know? From what I hear, yeah,
4: I've I've um like served him several times Mm, before throughout my life, and he has always been. Very nice, tipped really well. He was a Pittsburgh guy and really loved Phil because Phil has that big tattoo of some Pitts penguin, um,
2: Mario Lemieux,
4: yeah, um, on his arm. And they had big conversations. He always tipped really, really well. Mm. I, I, he did not have that, day, that but... scandal
2: where he like killed all of his clones. <laughs> oh my
4: god,
2: multiplicity. Oh, <laughs> it's a movie, Jack. <laughs> it's not real.
5: Oh, it's not, I know. Real. I know that you grew up oh. raised on VHS tapes, falling asleep at night, learning okay, well, everything some... there is to know about life
2: from cinema. I thought I heard he had some other scandal where he was like juicing Beatles
3: or something. Oh my
5: god,
2: god. dude!
5: We're
3: Am so, I way off base? So That's Batman. You're end, thinking please. of Batman. <laughs>
4: No, you're trying to think of another one. I can see you. You must let it go. I think there was something to do. Isn't there
5: one where
2: he had bird flu? (laughs) Oh yeah, that was Jack Frost.
4: Guys, that was Jack Frost. Please.
2: (laughs) Um, final scene. Three days later, Jackie goes to say goodbye to Max. She tells him she's going to go to Spain, probably Madrid. I hear they don't eat dinner till midnight.
4: That was good. That was good. The your Max Cherry right there. That was your best one yet.
2: Want to go? And of course he's like, turns her down. Ugh. She asks him, "Are you scared of me?" And he goes,
3: mm, "A little bit."
2: <laughs> she stands up, walks over to him, and they fucking kiss, and it's good. Mm-hmm. It is it's a good. good kiss.
5: It's good. She gets some lipstick on his lips. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And again, no music, no slow motion. Just a nice, tight shot of two middle-aged people giving a nice kiss.
4: I love it.
2: She says, I'll send you a postcard. They kiss again. They kiss one more time. It's like, when they go in for that second kiss, I'm like, damn. (laughs) And then she gets in the car and goes, and honestly, my opinion. He should have gone. She's too cool. Yeah. She's too cool for him. Yeah, It's a great fling. They they used each other this for what like they the needed. This is like the
4: greatest moment of his life, and it just let it live as a It'll be memory. the best
2: memory, but I'm glad he didn't go, because yeah. how sad would it be if it's like they start dating, and then it's like they break up, and yeah. she's like, this guy's a fucking loser. <laughs> 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 she's fucking too cool. But a yeah. uh, great great little fling they had, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, He got
4: to be the hero.
2: And to return to the question... I can't see any moment in the movie where she's not completely transparent with Max.
4: Yeah, I don't think that she plays him
2: outside of stealing his gun in that very first scene. I I think
4: they're true partners. I think it, feels it, is, like. it is
2: a true partner. And I and I believe her when she asks him if he wants to go. Yeah, she tries to offer him more
5: money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she wants he, him to take more. He money. doesn't take the full amount that that maybe exactly
2: what my dad would do. Yeah, know, exactly what my I dad know. Would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
5: I, I think Jackie is a person who is very smart and knows what she wants and gets what she wants. And I, but I believe her when she says, I didn't play you, Max. And I think everything is genuine. But at the same time, I do think she's fine. Like, she's fine without him. She doesn't. Yeah. Oh,
2: for she's sure. Not, oh, she, uh, yeah, she doesn't.
4: She, I think she knew, she knew he was going to be able to help her. He was like the perfect partner for her in this scenario and so i guess played him i guess a bit into that but he knew everything like yeah she never lies to him yeah. she never lies Play, to him.
5: playing sounds very like negative like yeah. she like the the last shot of her driving in the car is not sinister it's positive mm-hmm. and hopeful and beautiful and so i think you know a lot of times in life we have these like great moments with people and then it's over it doesn't have to be more than what it is so i think yeah. she had a chapter with Max Cherry mm-hmm. and the chapter is over and she's moving on with her life. I think Jack we see Jackie Brown code switch a lot in the movie. She speaks very differently to Max Cherry than she mm-hmm. does to the police, mm-hmm. than she does to uh to Ordell. And so I do think with that comes a little bit of uh, a performance, but I don't think that that performance uh diminishes that she might have felt something for him. Mm-hmm. A little spark, but yeah, I don't think it's but it was like survival. Tr- she, it's knows not true love she knows what to She knows how to survive. There's a hilarious scene earlier when uh, I think it's the second time Ordell goes to uh, Max Cherry's office,
0: mm-hmm.
5: and Max Cherry comes out of the bathroom, and Sam Jackson goes, uh uh ah! Uh, you didn't wash your hands." Yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't say anything and he just sits right down and at the end of the movie when Jackie Brown shows up at his office he's coming out of the bathroom you hear the toilet flush and you Mm -hmm. see him doing this so there's a theory online that that's his character arc that he learns (laughs) to wash his hands (laughs)
4: I love Uh, that so much. That's
2: pretty
5: funny.
4: (laughs) He didn't have a reason to wash his hands before, but now he does. Right, yeah.
2: And then, yeah, we get our final moment where she's in the car. It's a bookend, basically. We start the movie with Across 110th Street. We end the movie with Across 110th Street. The only difference here is that she's got her hands on the wheel. Mm -hmm. The opening scene, she's standing on the moving platform. Something's driving
5: her, and now she's
4: driving.
2: Now she's behind the wheel. And she's perfect. She's singing. This time. Yeah. So you can, the song is about somebody doing what they can to survive. So at the beginning of the movie, that song is about her. At the end of the movie, she's telling the story, she's singing the song. Ooh, stunning. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk final thoughts on Jackie Brown. Welcome back to Cinema Possessed, and we are talking 1997's Jackie Brown. Corey, starting with you.
4: You guys, I said it from the moment we started this podcast, and I'm ending the same way. A bookend, some might say. This is a perfect movie to me. This is my favorite movie. It's hard. It's hard when people ask you, what, what's what's your favorite movie? It ain't hard for me. It is Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. This has, I've already said it, but it has everything. It has romance. It has heist. It has comedy. It has drama. It has suspense. It has a little bit of horror. It's got it all, baby. It's its so well done. It, the feeling that I get when I watch older, like 80s and 90s romantic comedies is a feeling that like those, those types of movies meant so much to me growing up. And I'm, it was always, I'm always searching for that feeling in a movie of like the When Harry Met Sally's or, you know, something that you find like in a romantic comedy. I get that same feeling watching a movie like Jackie Brown, which is not a romantic comedy, but it has those feel good elements that I'm searching for when I'm watching a movie. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it does give me that same a bit of nostalgia, a bit of a, I don't know. It just just—it just hits all of the things I want. It's a warm, cozy it's a, feeling. Yes, it's a warm, cozy feeling. And it's so funny to say a Quentin Tarantino film gives me a warm, cozy feeling, but that is what Jackie Brown does. And I cannot recommend this film enough. And if you're one of those people who thinks that this movie is boring because it's too slow, we don't relate. And that's all I gotta say.
2: Amen. Preach it. Justin? Any
4: final
5: thoughts? It's not my favorite movie of all time, but it's certainly up there, and it's definitely number one Tarantino movie, possibly tied with Kill Bill. They're, they're such such mm-hmm. different things for me. Which is I great. Love Kill- it's great
2: to have two yeah. different ones. Mm-hmm.
5: And I I do I do like the new phase of Tarantino. I call it the. Rewriting history genre that he started with Inglorious Bastards, and he does it with Django, and he does it to a degree with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's a really fun and exciting thing to see. We don't get to see that in cinema often. But, you know, we have no business telling a filmmaker what to do. Do whatever the fuck you want to do. Wes Anderson, I don't like what you're doing, but I am inspired by your commitment to doing the same damn thing over and over (laughs) and over over again. It works for you, works for a lot of other people. But, um, yeah, Jackie Brown is just a great part of the Tarantino canon that I... I am hearing more people talk about how that might be their favorite Tarantino movie. I I don't know if it's underrated anymore. I'm just because it's out of so many people. And I do think it's one that when when I frequently have conversations with people about Tarantino, his possible behavior that that are we don't have the full picture on yet. He's not canceled, but he's in this like weird zone. But he's he's prolific. He has so much power. He's not even close to being canceled. Um, There's some haze around Tarantino that you have a conversation around him as if he was like Michael Jackson or Woody (laughs) Allen or Roman Polanski. But it's it's an interesting conversation to me. But when I have those with people and Jackie Brown comes up, they light up. They get excited. Mm. The tone changes. It just feels like a space where he does all the things right, and I get that he is a white man, and I get all those things. And this, he's not exactly telling a story that um, is part of his uh experience, but he tells a damn good story, and that's that's hard to. He ain't had the experience hard, of any
2: of his movies, right? <laughs> <laughs>
5: I'm I'm pretty sure he fought in World War II. I don't know. <laughs> The movie is appropriately paced. It's perfectly paced. It does what I wish more movies that were based on books did, which is let go of the plot. And just let us breathe in the world and the characters. And for Tarantino to recognize that and appreciate that and value it so much that he does it for the first hour, hour and a half of the movie is really exciting. And Uh I wish I wish more movies did that. I don't want every movie to feel like it has to do all the movie things that Hollywood's been doing for so long. Tarantino does all the Hollywood shit really well, better than anyone else. But we get that. After we get a pretty compelling, pretty beautiful, pretty well-paced mm-hmm. open o- open introduction to what could have been boring, I don't particularly care for double crossing and heists and all that stuff. So he 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 woos me, yeah, and then and then he gets into exposition and all that stuff. So yeah, I think it's brilliant.
2: Yeah, all you have to do is compare this movie to. The other Elmore Leonard adaptations that are of a similar style and characters like Out of Sight, like Get Shorty, they have their charms, but they are just like far in a way not as good. It's that confidence and that boldness that Tarantino has always had from Reservoir Dogs. He will luxuriate in conversation for as long as he wants to. He's not caring. He's never cared about plot. And that's the joy. That's why he's a special filmmaker is because he's never felt like he was tied to that stuff. And he loves characters. And that's what you come to the movie for. You don't come back to this movie for the plot. Yeah, I mean, I can't really add much more. I fucking love the movie. I love the soundtrack. I would encourage anybody who's on the fence about the movie who maybe saw it a long time ago and decided they weren't that big into it or i think there's a lot of people who just never went and saw this movie because it used to kind of have the reputation as being like the boring tarantino movie if you're one of those people and you've made it this far go watch the fucking movie you're gonna love it well now that we've said everything there is to say about jackie brown what do you say we play the sam jackson quote quiz that's right folks The Sam Jackson quote quiz. I am going to play you a clip with a Sam Jackson quote. You two have to tell me what movie it is from. Are you ready? Ready. Open your ears, folks. Here we go. Quote number one.
1: You know me. It's my duty to please that booty.
4: (laughs) I do recognize that.
2: It's my, my duty, duty to, to please, please that, that booty. booty.
4: I feel like this is so obvious.
2: The film came out after Jackie Brown, but it does have roots in Black Exploitation.
4: Boxy Brown?
5: Justin. Shaft.
4: Uh, Correct the mundo! <laughs> I never saw Shaft.
2: <laughs> Shaft the remake. <laughs>
4: Quote number two.
1: Yes, they deserve to
4: die, and I hope they burn in hell. Corey, Corey, a time to kill. Correct the mundo. That's right. That's, that's a movie that will make you cry. That's
5: a good one. That made me cry. Do you remember when I cried? Yes, because yeah. you
4: came in, and Jack and I were both sobbing, and we were like, if you just even watch this scene, you'll cry. And then you watched it the next night, and you were bawling your eyes out.
2: Yeah, Joel Schumacher, fellas. You didn't think he had it in him. It we, is still kind of an over-the-top Crazy movie, but so good. Has a lot of good shit
4: in it too. Okay. Who's the mom who's the wife of Matthew McConaughey? So famous. Judd, Ashley Judd. That's right. She's so beautiful in that movie, Blonde.
2: Okay. Quote number three.
1: So you're assuming I won't shoot your sorry ass. And everyone knows when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and Umption.
4: (laughs) Corey Pulp Fiction?
1: God.
4: <laughs> it's like I do recognize all of these. You've seen it. Corey, Corey. Oh, fuck. I don't know what it's called, but it's that heist movie or this, that movie with Kevin Klein, not Kevin Klein, Kevin, oh, uh, uh, J- J- the, the negotiator. No. they no? oh. oh, not the
2: negotiator.
4: Kevin Klein. Kevin's just, Kevin
5: Justin, is it a diehard
2: movie? No! <laughs>
4: Damn. Okay, we've done
5: enough guesses. I got no no clue. Moving on.
2: (laughs) I'll give you one hint. It was written by Shane Black and directed by Rennie Harlan.
4: Those two names mean nothing to me.
5: I like Shane Black. I don't know what movie Shane Black wrote that Rennie Harlan
2: directed. The Long Kiss Goodnight. Mm. Gina Davis.
5: Sam
4: Jackson. Oh, yeah. That's a good one.
2: It is a good one haven't
5: seen it since it came out
2: okay no points on that one it's a tie game question or sorry quote number four
1: my name is zeus zeus yeah zeus as in father of apollo mount olympus don't fuck with me or i'll shove a lightning bolt up your ass zeus you got a problem with that
4: his name is zeus (laughs) Nope. This so. is hard <laughs> it's, it's hard because everything sounds so familiar But it's just because it's Samuel L. Jackson it. I know You've It seen sounds like the, he's
5: the same character in every movie
4: I don't know Give a clue
2: It is in a franchise Die Hard <laughs> Die Hard what? Three What's the title?
4: Die Hard with die a Vengeance uh, uh, the Yes
2: no, That doesn't count
5: yes. like, You can't steal that from me I said, I said Die
4: it. Hard with a Vengeance You didn't say that
2: I said Die Hard 3 I'm going right. to give a half a point to Justin And a half a point to Corey Because there should be some penalizations For not having the, the correct full title And you were able to get doesn't it matter. So still It's still a tie three. game It's still one and a half There's to one vengeance. and
4: a half <laughs> There's vengeance
2: <sighs> Okay Quote, number five.
5: The reason why Die Hard throws me off is because Die Hard with a Vengeance feels like the sequel to me. Like, there's Die Hard, there's Die Hard with a Vengeance, and then there's Die Hard 3. You know what I mean?
4: What's well, die, die, die Hard 2? Die, die Harder. Ugh. Die That's Hard, awesome. Die Harder, Die with a Vengeance. That <laughs> is actually Die good. Harder
5: is like the hardest Die. die
2: Hardest. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be Live Free or Die Hard, I believe. Ugh, yeah, that's awful. Then what was the fourth one called? Or sorry, the fifth one. There was Live Free or Die Hard, and then there was A Good Day to Die Hard. Ugh, Ugh terrible, stop. terrible shit. Stop. Okay, quote number five.
5: You
1: gonna make a deal with this diabolical?
4: <laughs> you know, Wait, deal with this is diabolical it that slow bitch. in the yeah, movie? Uh huh. You know, it deal is with this diabolical bitch.
0: It is
2: that slow in the movie, and it's great.
4: Uh, this, is oh, tough. this is so. It's the hardest one yet. We need
5: some clues. Throw yeah. throw some clues, our way.
2: Okay, that is in slow motion in the film. That's why mm-hmm. it's that slow. Is because it's mm-hmm. the moment is being shot in slow motion. Mm hmm who, what, what filmmaker do you feel like would do such a thing?
4: Come on, a better clue than that.
2: Okay, can you think of a, can you think of a movie? Okay, I'll give you a hint. It's older Sam Jackson. Like, not older, like older now. Like, more, he's play he's he's grayed. Mm-hmm. He's grayed
5: mm-hmm. up. Mm. Um, Justin, and it's, it's Tarantino, and it's...
4: Yeah. It's not Django.
5: I think it's Hateful Eight.
4: Uh, Correct the mundo. Hateful
0: Eight.
3: <laughs> nice. You go make
0: a oh, deal yeah. with yeah. this
2: diabolical bit. <laughs> Such a funny moment. <laughs> hmm He's knocking on Death's door. He's bleeding out on the bed. Mm-hmm. Walton Goggins is making a deal with Jennifer Jason Lee, and he can't believe what he's seeing. And it's really mm-hmm. funny. Okay. Question number six. So Justin is in the lead by one. So point. when you
5: edit that together, just take out all the air from me S- thinking and just make it real fluid <laughs> like I just fired hatefully out of a kid. I'll take out
2: 80% of the air, but I'll leave just enough to let the people know you struggle.
1: I struggled. <laughs> yeah. Question number six.
2: Quote number six.
1: Yeah, motherfucker.
4: I eat everything. I eat the pussy. I eat the butt. I eat every
5: motherfucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> Never says that? Justin, I don't feel confident, but I'm gonna say true romance.
1: Correct the mundo. Oh, yes. That's
2: right. He has a very small part, but quite memorable mm. and a great line there. <laughs> okay. Here's a tricky one. Final quote. Justin is. Two points ahead, Mm -hmm. with three and a half points total, Corey has one and a half points.
4: So this is worth.
2: A total of nine points.
4: (laughs) The way in which you choose numbers makes no sense.
2: (laughs) Okay, final quote. Here we go.
1: Everybody strap in. I'm about to open some fucking windows. Justin,
5: snakes on a plane?
1: That's correct. On, oh,
3: nice. It was Good a trick because the
2: full quote is.
3: Enough
1: is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. Everybody strap in. I'm about to open some fucking windows.
4: <laughs> Saw that movie I in wonder, theaters.
5: I wonder if we're so far away from that movie that it, it actually would be more fun now. Oh yeah, it oh, would probably I be more fun. So. Now.
4: Yeah,
2: yeah, it would probably be more fun now. Justin wins the Sam Jackson quote quiz. Congratulations. Congratulations. (laughs) Well, that, my friends, is the show. Follow us on social media at Cinema Possessed Pod, where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And if you want to get in touch with us, email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And folks, join the Patreon. There is so much content on there just waiting for you. That's at patreon.com slash cinemapossessedpod. You can unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials. Those are bonus episodes that we put out twice a month where we talk about all sorts of cool shit. We talk about movies that are in theaters. We talk about movies that we've never seen before. We talk top five lists, we've talked opening scenes, we've talked horror comedies, we've talked nude scenes, we've talked Spike Lee movies. Guys, we're talking all sorts of shit on there. You never know what we're going to talk about next. So join the Patreon if you love the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can get your pods. If you can leave a review, we'll take it. It helps, folks. And as always, keep watching the movies you love and stay possessed later later see ya
3: bye, bye. bye.